hello and welcome to episode number 450 Oh yes, 450 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I am Carlos, and in this week's show, one pilot steps in and saves the day. BA are on the hunt for pilots, and a 717 takes a mid-air leak. In the military news this week, Armando takes a look at rivets, and it's the F-15s to the rescue. So joining me this week across the village here in rural Suffolk is, of course, the guy who runs everything in the Master Suite studio. (laughs) It's Matt Smith. Hello. Yes, yes, yes. I'm back this week. Hello. Although I, I was here, wasn't I? But uh, wasn't able to join you last week. But uh, yeah, you, you, were, you were you were busy. You were you were sorting things out. Absolutely, yes, 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 yes. But I'm but, here uh, now. He's here now, so yes. things will work perfectly. Well, although, I although say, come last week, yeah, yeah, credit where credit's due. It was actually um, I was able to literally top and tail. I was quite impressed. I know, I, I shocked yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, one thing we never have to worry about when it comes to this sort of thing, though, uh, and he's always punctual, always on time, and his audio is always A1. It and is, his shirt's course, always crisp. And his shirt is always nicely crisp, despite my best efforts, because uh, <laughs> I get Carlos to iron my shirts. Uh, it, hello, Nev. <laughs> yes, well, here we are. Um, a, an interesting day today, lots of driving around... Um, Buckinghamshire, Berkshire, Hampshire, and then um, I'll just show you my uh, little bit of oh, tooth dear. that came out today. Oh, oh no. Emergency dental appointment at 12.30. Not 2.30, as some people might say. <laughs> I see what you um, But, uh, yeah, so we could have done without that, really. But, uh, no, for £23.80, I would like to thank the NHS for... <laughs> fixing my tooth for me. Uh, so you're you're very lucky you have access to one, Nev, because I have well, to say, there's a bit I of a problem in this part of the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, no, a busy week, no flying this week, just lots <gasps> of driving and a lot of, lot of faffing about, a bit more than I would have liked. But oh, uh, nonetheless, uh, I'm here to tell the tale once again. Well, pop it under your pillow, Nev. You, you <laughs> might get uh, a few quid. Right, okay. I'll, I might do that. I'll Indeed. See or an aircraft part, you know. Well, that's, yeah, that could be, nice. could be a... A tag, at least, surely. Well, we'll, yeah. APU, we'll see. Yeah. We'll APU. see what the tooth fairy can do. Yeah. We'll see what the tooth fairy can do. And uh, we've, uh, we're missing a member of the team this week. Armando is uh, unfortunately not with us this week, although we may be watching... Yeah. Uh, well, not watching while driving. Let me get this right. He might listening. be listening, listening yeah. while driving, unless uh, his lovely wife is driving, in which case he will be watching. Uh, but uh, he has sent us some videos in this week for the military news, so don't panic, Jonathan Warner. There will be some military <laughs> news this week, uh, and Armando will be doing it properly. So don't panic. And uh, He's on tape, isn't he, basically? He's on tape, yeah. 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 But uh, we have got a fantastic guest joining us. This super week sub. Yeah. A yeah. super sub. And it's safe to say that if you want something flown somewhere and you can't find anyone, maybe you can hire John Jester, <laughs> flying the Queen of the Skies. So welcome onto the show, John. from New Amsterdam, aka New York City. <laughs> Where I'm uh, sitting uh, patiently waiting for my uh, trip to start tomorrow. Oh. oh dear. How long have you been there, John? I uh, arrived last night late. I had a conference that was in uh, Baltimore that we uh, affectionately call Fight Club because I can't talk about it. Okay, right. Uh, but the safety, 
it's a safety it's a safety conference that the uh, aviation industry does here in the U.S. and uh, invites uh, participants from around the world to come into as well. But unfortunately, I, I literally can't talk about it. And um, I drove up that. yesterday. I love that. I love uh, that because it makes it sound like you're a spy, John. I love that. It's just. <laughs> Uh, safety is generally the anti-spy network. Oh, right. <laughs> so there, there, there are certain certain things that we do with safety that we keep. Uh, we like to keep the things certain. Fair enough. To, close to the vest. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so you've you've got you've left your uh, your queen of the skies park somewhere, John. Uh, yeah, I'm waiting for her to show up here at uh, JFK tomorrow morning, and uh, I'll be off to uh, Anchorage with uh, I think eight people, which is not not nice. Oh. Too Ooh. many people on the plane. Too many people, yes, quite. Too many people. <laughs> yeah, for a cargo pilot, that's too many people, yes. <laughs> have you got enough seats? Is there enough seats? Yes, there, there actually is. We have uh, on a 400, we have four seats, and uh, Dash 8 will have six seats in the back, and then there's four seats in the cockpit. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I'd, I'd want a cockpit seat, I think. You know, that's, that's, you, you want the views, <sighs> don't you? If you, if you gonna, the, the view uh, is a yeah. tad bit better. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Uh, now, uh, while we're sort of talking, talking uh, uh, about amazing things, by the way, I bumped into someone today, Carlos. Oh, did uh, it hurt? Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I bumped into somebody because I was, I was actually in town. Yes, I can see you laughing. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> I, could, uh, I was uh, uh, out doing a, a little recording for, for the other thing that I did outside of of this and i bumped into somebody who was telling me that that somebody who lives just up the road from us is a big fan and is always listening yes and, i i did hear a whisper yeah. about a certain certain young uh, young member of our aviation uh, ptuk family who lives mm. as matt said not far from us here in bungie so hopefully he's watching the show tonight so uh, if you are oscar hello oscar one of our youngest viewers of the show there's yeah. a picture of him there he's 10 uh, years old bless him he's uh, getting he's getting ready matt he's yeah getting, he is he's getting yeah. ready there and mum yeah. and dad are absolutely terrified because he's absolutely aviation obsessed um, and you know that what that means don't you yes it, it means that it means that mummy and daddy are gonna have to do lots and lots and lots and lots of work yes indeed. and earn lots and lots and lots of money yeah, indeed yeah. so yes uh, well in a perfect well what we need to do is send send her oscar off with john don't we so we can go and experience yes. the the old 747 bless it while it's still kicking around but uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, yes thanks for being a loyal listener uh oscar it really is appreciated we've actually uh, that picture was taken at the norwich aviation museum and uh, we do actually have a meetup planned at the norwich aviation uh, yeah, we museum do. very very soon so i'll make sure i send the dates across to mum and dad and then um, perhaps you can come along and uh, and come see us because it's um it's um it's wheels and something or other isn't it what was it called Wing, wings, wings and wheels. Wings I, don't, and I, don't wheels. <laughs> I don't know. Don't oh, know. wheels and things. Wheels and things. Wheels absolutely. And things. Wheels and wheels and, and, and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Loud, and, loud uh, noisy engines and Vulcans and all that sort of thing. Oh, I know. It's yeah. gonna it's gonna be a good day out. So yeah, thanks for watching, Oscar. Hope uh, hope you enjoy the show. He's gonna try and tune in. I spec as long as he can and see. Yeah, absolutely. As long as mummy and daddy lets him. Yeah, I don't know what time bedtime is, but uh, we better crack on, I guess. Mine's now. <laughs> good night, everyone. All oh, right. Um, oh, very good. Gonna say. A big hello to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. Everyone's uh, 
in there as always. Uh, early early risers today, Lee Davies. Hello to you, Lee. He's uh, obviously getting his beer ready. Uh, we've got Hobby Time. Hello, Hobby Time. Nick Codling, our uh, newest member of the team, who's uh, done a lot of work this week for our show notes. Hello to you, Nick. Uh, Mazus, hello to you as well, one of our local listeners as well. Uh, Aaron P, hello. Dirk S is in there. Bill, hello, Bill. Uh, Richard Adams, good to see you in there, Richard. Graham Haley is in there as well. Good to see you, Graham. Logan Lynch, he's in North Dakota uh, watching tonight. Our main man, Micah, with the Blue Spanner of Doom, he's joined us in there as well. This evening. Good, after uh, good evening, I should say, to you, Micah. Well, mind you, it is good afternoon where Micah is. Uh, Stuart is also in there. Stuart McCutcheon, hello to you as well. Thanks for joining us in the YouTube chat room. And thanks to everyone. Uh, who's joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening. Good to see you all in there. Don't forget, if you listen to the show as a audio podcast and you want to see just how crisp Nev's shirts really are, uh, you need to take yourselves over to youtube.com uh, forward slash plain talking UK and you'll find us on there. And don't forget to click the subscribe and hit the bell icon as well to be notified when Matt's hitting the go live button in the studio on a Friday night. Because we'd love to have you in our community chat room. Absolutely, yes. And of course, a very good evening to Oscar as well. Yes, and Oscar. <laughs> yeah. So we've got loads of news to get through tonight. And obviously our caption is, which this week sparked quite a fair amount of interest on, on uh, the social medias. And uh, we've got a very special story as well this week in commercial news uh, about, uh, which is actually the first story, uh, which is uh, going to be about a place where Nev knows very well. So uh -oh. if everyone is ready, let's I do commercials. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll press a button and see what happens, shall we? Press a button. Press a button. Press it. Hey! Well, yes, it's uh, this story is from the Chronicle.gi, which means only one thing. It's all about Gibraltar Airport, and the tunnel under the runway has finally opened today. Would you believe? Uh, these are words I'd never thought I'd ever be saying. <laughs> uh, but the tunnel uh, itself is will be open to all vehicular traffic uh, today. Over fourteen years since the project commenced and marking the first new entry route into Gibraltar since the runway was built during World War II. As from today, the tunnel will be the only regular access point for all cars and motorcycles, including commercial vehicles to and from the frontier with Spain and Gibraltar International Airport. Uh, only pedestrians, cyclists, scooter and e-scooter riders and mobility scooter users will be allowed to cross the runway from that date. So all vehicles, including cars, motorcycles, vans and trucks, must use the tunnel via Devil's Tower Road and the East Gate roundabout. Uh, the tunnel will open at one minute past midnight, which it has uh, in the early hours of Friday morning. Built to British standards, the new airport tunnel provides a two-lane road in each direction, accessible via Devil's Tower Road with a separate subway to provide a safe route for pedestrians, cyclists and e-scooter riders to travel through the tunnel should they so wish via a footbridge 
uh, which is accessible from the eastern beach. Uh, this project, as, they, as I said earlier, has taken 14 years to complete with contractors on site for a total of nine years and work suspended for a period of five years due to litigation proceedings. The original contract was signed in November 2008 by the then Chief Minister, Sir Peter Karuna. Uh, prior to the tunnel opening, Winston Churchill Avenue is the only road linking Gibraltar to neighbouring Spain. Uh, the Chief Minister Fabian Picardo, Fabian Picardo says, I'm delighted that this, is, this long overdue critical piece of Gibraltar's infrastructure will finally be operational this week, uh, over 14 years after the original contract was signed. The long gestation of this project has arisen from litigation and disputes where the Gibraltar government would not accept substandard work, not in keeping with British standards. But it was right, we should not pay taxpayers money for work, not in keeping with those contractually agreed standards. The government's insistence that the tunnel be completed to the highest British standards, as it was originally contracted to be, means that the final product is fitted with tried and tested safety features that ensure it's fit for Gibraltar's unique requirements. Uh, for the first time since 1941, the tunnel will enable free flow of vehicles and pedestrians across Gibraltar and will put an end to traffic gridlock caused by the closure of the runway to allow flights to land and take off at the busy Gibraltar International Airport. Uh, it's not that busy actually, I have to say, uh, but the tunnel infrastructure includes significant changes to the way vehicles and pedestrians move around Devil's Tower Road and the area of the frontier. Uh, so, Mr Picardo says, please exercise caution over the first few weeks, drive carefully and play, uh, pay close attention to the new road signs mm -hmm. and instructions. I'm also very pleased that the government has signed a memorandum of understanding with the Ministry of Defence that will allow pedestrians to continue to cross the runway. This is environmentally significant and positive. Again, the system for pedestrians to cross the runway will also be different from what we are used to, so please pay attention to the new signs and instructions. Uh, the runway itself, of course, was built across it in 1941 and uh, incorporated vehicular and pedestrian routes to and from the frontier. Uh, in recent years, the road was closed for up to 15 times per day to allow flights to take off and land. And the new tunnel, for the first time since 1941, enables the un uninterrupted flow of traffic from one side of the runway to the other and, according to the Gibraltar government, will significantly improve traffic flow across Gibraltar itself. Um, story goes on somewhat but uh, in general terms it's a huge improvement and when I was there doing the interview with Trevor Hammond who's general manager of Nats for the area um, we were sort of estimating how long this was going to take and we didn't really know but finally it's happened so it's very good news indeed but you can still cross the runway uh, if you wish on, on foot as well so you can still take those pictures of you being in the middle of the runway. Uh, so, for, so forgive my naivety here, but I mean, presumably, is that what all the traffic lights and everything were all about? To, you know, essentially, to stop traffic when the the runway was in in uh, yeah. use. If you absolutely, I mean, there's only yeah. probably five or six commercial flights a day to and from Gibraltar. Right. Uh, then there's the RAF flights from Bryce Norton, and there's uh, some uh, private flights, some bizjet flights as well and uh, some helicopter services and, and that kind of thing. But the congestion that it was causing on both sides of the uh, runway were just horrific because um, obviously they've got to shut the whole thing 
well in advance of uh, an aircraft landing. Of course, with the propensity for missed approaches at Gibraltar because of the weather and, and the whole topography of the place, um, if you ended up doing a go around, then of course the traffic was going to stay put for another 15 minutes. So yeah, it, it was really challenging. But uh, let's see what happens. So I probably need to do another, another trip back there just to check it out, make sure they it has been built to British standards. Well, of course, as, absolutely. As they keep saying <clears throat> in their article. <laughs> Very important, I think, Nev. Standards yes, must is. be maintained, I say. Well, quite. quite. Have you ever uh, flown into uh, Gibraltar, John? No. The closest I've been down there was uh, my summer vacation last year, and you can see the rock, but that was it. Uh, it was sort of a wish, but uh, not to be uh, allowed with the family. Yeah, you'd probably struggle, I think, when you have to get the uh, the seven four in there. Well, I think you could get the seven four in, but you <laughs> ah. couldn't get it out again, probably. You can get you can get the seven four in yeah. at Norwich. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's not... you could get it off the runway. I think you can always, you can always get it in and get it out. The plane actually light. We land on a six thousand foot runway. Well, Gibraltar is just on six thousand feet, John. Ah. So, um, yeah, no we we. We go to an air park that's uh, actually in one of the stories today, now down in Arizona, and it's 6,000 feet. We have to be tugged onto the runway and tugged off the runway. It's such a small airport. We, we use it for maintenance only. It's not a, not a regular operation, but it can be done. Mm. Positive landing required. No floating it down the runway. No. No, 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 one, no. no Cessna 172 in it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, next story comes to us from NBC News, and uh, actually saw this one on this week. Actually, I saw this on the news feeds. It's a pilot from another airline helps land Southwest flight after captain falls ill. It's always one of those calls I've always wanted to get when I've been a passenger on board an aircraft, but it's not happened yet. But anyway, I don't uh, think your Cessna license will quite cover it, Carlos. To be honest, well, I don't. Yeah, but I, f I fly a seven three seven here at home. You know, it's virtually the same. Again, not sure that's the same. Um... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, passengers on a Southwest flight sixty thirteen, which was headed from Las Vegas to uh, Columbus, Ohio, said they were very thankful another pilot was on board. A pilot from another airline helped land the Southwest Airlines flight that left early on Wednesday from uh, Las Vegas after its captain became incapacitated and required medical attention, according to the airline and traffic uh, radio traffic data. In an episode that surprised some passengers who had no clue a pilot had fallen ill. Uh, Southwest Flight 6013 had taken off just after 6.30 a.m., bound for Columbus, uh, Ohio, according to the flight tracking site FlightAware. While it was airborne, one of its pilots needed medical attention, a spokesperson for the airline said, without giving details about the specific health issue the pilot had suffered. In a radio traffic archive by the website LiveATC, a person says the captain had started to feel stomach pains and then fainted or became incapacitated around five minutes later. The person says the captain came back around 60 seconds later and was being looked after in the rear of the aircraft. And they also said on the air, on the radio that we needed to get him on the ambulance immediately. Uh, Las Vegas resident Diane McGlinchey, uh, who was on the flight with her husband, said uh, on Thursday that she didn't notice any panic when crew members initially went on the plane's public announce system to ask whether medical personnel were on board. A passenger sitting up the front who said she was a nurse put her call light to help 
and said, uh, she and her husband had been at the back of the plane and didn't notice it was a pilot who needed help. But she said they knew, they knew the ill person uh, was with the nurse in her row being treated. Now, the crew calmly just uh, gave us an update saying we were going back to Las Vegas and we have a medical emergency on board, uh, McGlinchey said. Meanwhile, the credential pilot from another airline uh, who was on board as a passenger entered the flight deck with assisted uh, and assisted with the radio communications as the second southwest or the second officer of the southwest pilot uh, flew the aircraft um, for the airline uh, he said we greatly appreciated their support and assistance uh, the spokesperson said of the pilot who stepped in. According to Flight Aware, the plane returned to Las Vegas Harry Reid International Airport around 7.50 a.m. The Southwest spokesperson said the plane landed safely and an alternative crew took over operating the flight to Columbus. They said we commend the crew for their professionalism and appreciate the customer's patience and understanding regarding the situation. McGlinchey said he, she and her husband didn't realise it was a pilot who uh, had the medical emergency after the plane landed and EMS and fire officials were already waiting. And that's when the pilot did come on and say they were taking the captain off the aircraft, she said. The other pilot from the other plane happened uh, to also be in his uniform, she added, and no one seemed anxious or worried when the flight turned round back to Las Vegas. They were very thankful, she said, that he was there, McGlinchey said, of the pilot who intervened. I'm positive that the first officer would have been able to land smoothly, but it definitely made it. Uh, or made it easier for sure to have someone there to do the radio parts of the landing uh, while on the aircraft. So it went very smoothly. Ross Aimer, the CEO of Aero Consulting Experts in California and a retired United Airlines pilot, said the commercial airline pilots undergo medical checkups every six months uh, or every, and uh, such health scares are rare. With two pilots on every flight, the captain and the first officer are equally qualified, as we all know who watch the show, and trained to operate the plane by themselves if the other becomes incapacitated, he said. That, by a chance, a third pilot was on board was the icing on the cake, he said. Southwest declined to comment further about the incident, but said in a statement that all of its pilots are trained to fly as single pilots for situations such as this, and our pilot exhibited exceptional airmanship whilst in control of the aircraft. Well, we all know, don't we? We've seen this before. Uh, this is not the first time this has happened, and, and uh, we all know that uh, the first officer is as capable as landing the aircraft as uh, the captain. But uh, what are your thoughts, John, being our resident uh, commercial uh, pilot here on the show this evening? Yeah, I, I think it, you covered it real clearly there that the uh, having that extra pilot on board to come up and take over radio duties, it's just a huge help. It just takes one last little bit of thought and allows for some uh, coordination and uh, lets the first officer really focus on his task of flying the aircraft, performing performance numbers, probably doing some communications with the company to uh, facilitate the, uh, the landing. And uh, if you listen to the audio of this, they uh, elected to land and stop on the runway because the ground steering on uh, 737 is uh, only on the left-hand side through the tiller, and if the captain's the one that fell ill, the stand-in pilot is on the left side, and you're not going to swap, and it's going to be much faster to just uh, stop the aircraft, get medical assistance there, and then let the plug be tugged off. And that's certainly the safest. There's no reason to uh, 
push it any further. Air traffic can deal with a delay uh, to ensure that this captain got the medical attention he needed as quick as possible. And, and I think that they acted exceptionally well. Basics of CRM apply to all airlines, all, all different operators. And usually you can kind of fit in fairly well. The individual procedures are slightly different, but the basics are the basics. So I suppose for you guys with the cargo outfits, you generally tend, I think, do you generally tend to, to fly with more than two pilots on, on the flights that you, that you do, John? It really depends upon the length of flights. Uh, we tend to opt towards three. Most of our flights are on a short end, six and a half to eight hours. Uh, long end we're, can be in excess of 17. Uh, so it scales up uh, up to eight hours, can be just two pilots. Occasionally we'll do that. Occasionally we'll do crossings of the uh, ocean and with just two. We try not to do that. Oftentimes what drives it is the uh, uh, rest requirements that uh, exist because we've flown so much in the preceding uh, days will necessitate that third person, even if we don't have a, a direct hour requirement for that individual day. And it's always safer to have them on there. A lot of times we are actually just transporting other pilots from our company to get to another flight as well in the back of the aircraft on the 747 especially. And Nev, you've obviously flown the uh, the A320 sim, didn't you? And you successfully, I think you successfully landed as well, didn't you? So would would you be popping your hand up if the um, question was asked? Well, let's just, uh, yes, I, I did land it, uh, single engine as well. But let's just be clear here. I was in the right-hand seat and I had a uh, fully qualified uh, fella in the left-hand seat who was doing throttles, radio, you know, gear, flaps and all the rest of it. So, you know, I didn't have that much to do. I was just thinking, John, about, uh, you know, taxiing off the runway um, with, with the tiller only on the, the captain's side. I wonder why Boeing have, have done that and many other uh, manufacturers have only got the, the tiller on the, uh, the captain's side. What, what do you think that is? It could be a cost thing for one, or it could be just the nature of the fact that the aircraft was designed, you know, long ago when the captains reigned supreme and the captains did were responsible for everything. Uh, you look at the newer aircraft, um, 777s, uh, a lot of the Airbuses, I believe, have the um, tiller on both sides. 747 has the tiller on both sides. And our company was actually discussing going to a captain-only uh, uh, taxi procedure and we had huge pushback from everybody saying, no, bad idea, really bad idea, don't do it. Because jumping into a, a large aircraft and suddenly taxiing it for the first time uh, is not, a, it's not an easy thing. And some 47s, despite their size, are a bit skittish on the ground, uh, especially when they're light uh, and you need some experience. And it's best to have that with somebody there with you. Uh, so in this case, you know, the 737 just has on the, on the left, and uh, it's certainly a better choice to, you know, just go with that that uh, process and not try and shake things up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What What is it that – so this guy's put his hand up and said, I mean, did he have his flying light? He, surely in order for him to have been accepted and taken seriously, he must have had some form of flying ID on him. Or, or like, a, you know, like a copy of his life. I mean, do you, do you carry your license with you? Always, always oh. carry my license with me. Okay. Uh, the I believe in the story it said he had his uniform on, and uh, 
I believe the, the gentleman was from NetJets. Right. NetJets pilots are oftentimes uh, riding in the back aircraft, and they're either immediately going to go fly or have just completed a flying, so they even have gotten a, a chance to get out of the uniform, or they need to be on their, uh, their yeah. game to be able to show up and ready to go. And they have IDs, and all the flight attendants on uh, passenger flights are trained uh, to look for able-bodied persons. And in this case, a pilot is a great able-bodied person mm-hmm. to replace a pilot. Well, presumably- uh, it's also safe for evacuations. They're looking for sort of people that can assist them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we carry our, our stuff. We'd show credentials, and I think that you know, it would be pretty obvious and a quick assessment by the first officer, this this uh, volunteer is going to say, yes, no, this is going to work or not. So, I mean, and, and again, this is my naivety, so I, I apologize for this, but I, I guess the the reality is that if his his only role, if you like, would be to assist, um, if you like, the, the, the first officer who's now sort of by default been promoted, I guess, to the, the sort of like captain, albeit in the wrong seat. Um, I mean, presumably... Um, you just it would just be a case of getting on the ground and then worry about how you move the aircraft off after that, I guess. Absolutely. And if you, when you listen to the radio conversations, the uh, communication was exceptionally clear to the tower mm. that they were going to stop. It was not a question. Yeah. They were going to be stopping on there and get the uh, tug off yeah. after the mm. captain was taken care of. Yeah. Um, you know, and if like Michael was saying, you know, if they both ate the fish... Yeah, it happened to be both pilots. Oh, technically, who gets in charge is the lead flight attendant, and you know, I mean, lead flight attendant's not going to fly, mm. but the, this uh, replacement pilot certainly would have the capability of getting up there, getting a little bit of assistance, yeah. uh, getting the autopilot to land the aircraft, yeah, or or manually landing the aircraft in some form or fashion. Mm. You know, it's not going to necessarily be the best landing ever, but no. you know, anybody can pretty much get walked through getting it on the ground yeah. for the most part and most modern aircraft and including the new seven threes have the auto land capability so and in and in, and in this scenario presumably they are um they're um like his duties essentially almost were to uh because it doesn't matter what the aircraft is the radio calls i guess are going to be virtually the same aren't they to the tower and and such like 100 percent the same worst cases the or hardest things to say the right call sign yeah, well, yeah, it's quite. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. And he probably was also helping out with checklist, reading a checklist. Yeah. We keep a yeah. a card. Excuse me. Uh, we keep a card in there for the checklist items, and that helps drive your rhythm. That yeah. you have uh, have that. And I'm sure that they spent a quick bit, a uh, quick moment there, going through what what was needed from the assistance uh, from the pilot. And uh, discussed that requirements. Gave a briefing to one another about what the what they knew, what they felt capable of, yeah. and and established a rapport. Yeah, no, very very cool. Okay, those are all my questions. Thank you, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, you've got. Yes. Uh, if you're if you're all right, to the, are you all right to the next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to give it a go. We we Matt, may have to abort. Uh, <laughs> Matt's got the next story, and it's about one of those things that I always seem to want to do as soon as I get airborne. Yeah, indeed. Uh, let's 
<laughs> I see what you did there, yes. Absolutely. Uh, it's from simpleflying.com and the headline is Delta Airlines Boeing 717 leaks fuel soon after taking off. A Boeing 717-200 operated by Delta Airlines en route from Charlotte to Detroit had to return to Charlotte shortly after departure due to a fuel leak last week. The incident was caught on video and posted to social media which it has now had more than 40,000 views. The aircraft was airborne for about 10 minutes before it landed and underwent inspection. Delta said the affected passengers were rebooked on their flights. Um, the uh, N92, uh, N925AT is a 22-year-old 717-200. The aircraft was operating Delta Airlines flight 2481 DL2481 from Charlotte Douglas International Airport to Detroit Metropolitan Wayne County Airport on Tuesday the 14th of March. According to the Aviation Herald, the plane had di di departed from runway 336C where, uh, when air traffic controllers observed a fuel loss from the aircraft. During its climb, massive amounts of fuel were released from the uh, from the right wing uh, at 4,000 feet, pilots reportedly stopped the climb and circled the plane round to return to Charlotte on runway 36 left. Uh, air traffic control also cancelled all other approach clearances to runway, runway 36 left as a precaution. The 717 landed safely about 10 minutes after departure. Video footage posted on Twitter captures the incident. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Atlanta-based carrier said safety is always our priority. We apologise to our customers on Delta Flight 2481 from Charlotte to Detroit that returned to Charlotte shortly after departure following a reported aircraft fuel issue. The aircraft landed and taxied to the gate under its own power where it underwent inspection. Customers were reaccommodated on alternative flights out of Charlotte to most quickly get on their way to their respective destinations. Safety, as always, remains Delta's top priority. I, it, I, I feel nervous that they felt like they needed to say that twice. Um, a passenger on, uh, on board the flight uh, recounted the incident. I was sitting on the wing seat on the left and looked to the right. Uh, that sounds like, I, I feel like that sounds like a line from Time Warp for some reason. Uh, that... Uh, <laughs> That thing was spewing gas from the wing like a fire hydrant. I'm not an expert on this, but I thought something wasn't right. The passenger said, no, no, no kidding. Um, I, there, there's more to the story there, but I won't uh, go into it. Uh, I mean, this is, I mean, obviously this is a, a very, very rare incident. I know we can't really sort of guess. Um, I mean, is this, and again, forgive my naivety here, is this essentially a screw, screw up with refueling perhaps, John? Oh, I suppose it's a screw loose. <laughs> screw loose. No, yeah, it, it's a possibility, but every once in a while, airplanes get essentially grumpy. Right. Yeah. And uh, the the valves, the valves won't seat right, and yeah. uh, you have the the tanks in the wings, and then there's usually a, a, an additional tank up there called a surge tank. It's out towards the tip, mm -hmm. and that's to allow excess fuel to go into that surge tank, usually without going overboard. And it's also uh, attached to a vent, which allows pressurized air as they're flying to go back into the fuel tanks themselves. So you're not getting a vacuum as you suck the fuel out of the tanks right. while you're in flight. And just every once in a while, valves won't sit right. There's usually a check valve in there, and it won't seat 
and then the fuel escapes out the wingtip. We've seen this on a few occasions. I think the the latest one I remember prior to this was a uh, a CRJ similar issue. Fuel just streaming out the uh, right wingtip or left wingtip and um, leaving a nice trail. It's not a huge issue. You notice that pilots are going to be like, okay, are we underweight enough to land? Yeah, okay, great, let's go land. And uh, you just don't want to continue on. We don't want to don't want to run that wing dry because we're constantly siphoning it out. That valve isn't seating properly and it's not, air is not coming in. It's just going to keep siphoning the fuel out of the wing potentially. And that could be a problem, but this is pretty much a a non event other than leaving a bunch of gas on the uh, runway and that makes it a bit slick. Yeah. Aaron P in the chat room says he finds it odd that they taxi to the ramp. Surely you wouldn't want to, surely you'd want to stop. He says, and be checked out first rather than pour fuel all over the ramp. Maybe inaccurate reporting. Uh, I'm going to guess it's probably just was left out of the story. Uh, anytime that uh, somebody returns to the field and they're saying they got a fuel leak, I guarantee they they hit the, the bell and uh, the trucks are out there waiting for them, and they're going to follow them. And there's probably where's the truck following them all the way back to the gate, uh, just in case. And, and it's never really a... Uh, Generally, a concern. I mean, jet fuel. Again, the worst thing about jet fuel is it's just it's very oily. Can be very slick when it gets onto the ramp, especially if you get any kind of water mixing with it. It's very slick. But from a fire hazard, it's you know, I've watched the demonstrations where they take a lit cigarette and toss it into it. Nothing happens. So. I said vision. Story. Some poor guy running behind the aircraft with a big jug going, "Slow down." <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not. Anyway, moving swiftly on, John, you have got the next story, and uh, from aljazeera.com, and um, it's about uh, a near midair crash. Near midair crash, I might say. Yeah. Uh, so again, uh, from aljazeera.com, Nepal subjects two controllers after flights avert midair crash. The Civil Aviation Authority of Nepal suspends two employees of the Air Traffic Controller Department for carelessness. The Civil Aviation Authority of Nepal has suspended two employees of the Air Traffic Control Department for carelessness. The aviation body spokesman, Jagannath Nirola, has told the Press Trust of India News Agency. Nepal's CAAN on Sunday wrote that Director General of Civil Aviation of India to probe why the Air India plane, which was on hold at an altitude of 19,000 feet due to high traffic at Kathmandu Airport, suddenly descended and narrowly missed colliding with Nepal Airlines aircraft flying at 15,000 feet. We have written to the DGCAI requesting them to evaluate the occurrence and take actions as deemed and inform us accordingly. The CAN spokesperson told the Reuters news agency. He added that the aviation body was formed a committee to look into the incident. A warning system alerted the pilots, which averted the disaster, PTI reported on Sunday. The Nepal Airlines plane was inbound from Kathmandu to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and Air India. Uh, Air India airplane was coming from, to Kathmandu from New Delhi. Similarly, we have sent letters to the Indian Civil Aviation Regulatory Body to investigate into possible fault of Air India pilot and take action, Nirula said. The pilot is notorious for its poor air safety, 
The latest incident comes less than two months after the Yeti Airlines crash in western Nepal, which killed all 72 on board. A government committee is due to submit its report to ascertain the cause of the crash. So, yeah. Uh, so TCAS, uh, tra traffic collision avoidance system that all the aircraft pretty much are sporting nowadays. Again, this saves the day here. What caused the uh, or what, why this aircraft descended? That definitely is going to be something important. Listen to the audio tapes. Make sure there wasn't uh, a communication error where one aircraft took another's uh, call, or was there a mis uh, miscommunication or a bad instruction given to them, or did they just do something on their own, which uh, should be easy to ascertain. Hopefully. They were able to get the CVRs off of both aircraft and they had the audio tapes from ATC, be able to compare all that. So, John, in your, in your history of flying, have you ever had uh, a TCAS advisory when you've, uh, you've been flying? Yeah, multiple times. Uh, we've had RAs. Usually it's from a, a smaller, generally aviation aircraft or from uh, an aircraft climbing out of an airport as we're approaching it on uh, one of the arrivals. Charlotte was actually kind of noticeable for that. We usually had the aircraft already in sight, knowing that they were going to stop, but their rate of climb would cause it because the aircraft are just looking at each other and saying, okay, he's climbing really fast, but they don't know that we're going to stop or not. But uh, if you're getting RA, you're going to usually follow it unless you clearly know that that's the aircraft uh, and, and then you can avoid it in another means. It's generally... Uh, Eye-opening when they first get the first alert because the voice is extremely loud. When it calls out traffic, traffic, and then uh, when it does go to the RA, it's giving you instructions, clear instructions to descend or climb, maintain altitude, and uh, on many aircraft, uh, it will even give you uh, symbology on the primary flight display on where to go to maneuver the aircraft away in a safe manner. Hmm. I was looking at, at a YouTube clip from somebody this week. Uh, I always thought that, that uh, having had a TCAS RA, it was obviously, as you say, you're, you're following the instructions uh, and often the autopilot's engaged at this stage anyway. I mean, presumably you're carrying out a, a manual manoeuvre at this point in order to comply with the TCAS RA. But this article in, on YouTube was saying, oh, it's entirely automatic and, and the plane does it. That's not necessarily the case, is that? Uh, most airplanes is not the case. Uh, 747 is definitely not. Bo Boeing's is not uh, an automatic thing. I don't know that uh, Airbuses, 320s do this. I, I kind of think that the older ones do not. And, uh, yeah, it's a manually flown thing. It's not huge movements you're doing. You're not, uh, it's not an acrobatic maneuver. It's just a quick click the autopilot off, uh, pull the nose up a couple of degrees smoothly because, remember, you still have uh, people in the back oftentimes up. And I can recall my very first time I was flying a Saab 340. We're flying across Chesapeake Bay, and also we get this, uh, almost immediate TCAS RA, not even uh, not even the alert first, and it was just it's automatic, you know, yeah. two button pushes on the autopilot. <laughs> Excuse me, quick uh, flinch on my uh, fingers to just bring the nose up, and it it was over almost that quick. And it's not been much different than the other time I've ever had it. Um, we train this in the simulator every year. Oftentimes, uh, now we're doing reversal. Uh, TCAS RAs, where initially you might say 
descend and and then change to a climb because they're making the other aircraft being non-compliant just to keep you on your toes and it's uh it's good but you have to do it smoothly because you don't want to throw your flight attendants or passengers around and definitely don't want to float them off the ceiling that's neither one of those are good options yeah, I don't suppose that's a problem you really have as it now. Now, I suppose because um, your passengers are are in boxes. Uh, uh, generally speaking, yes, but we still do fly passengers with Atlas. Uh, we we have uh, several aircraft on the seven four fleet that do it, and still have and seven sixes that do uh, passenger flying as well. So it's certainly a possibility uh, that can occur for us. It's just you know our our flight regimes generally are not. You know, nobody's getting around us very close because they see what we're heavy aircraft and uh, nobody wants to play with those because we, we tend to turn things upside down for them. <laughs> so, Mr. Bounds, you have got the next story, haven't you, all about an airline that we've talked about quite a bit on the show. Yeah, definitely. It's on uh, flightglobal.com and the headline says Logan Air to expand Heathrow operations after leasing slots. Uh, UK regional carrier Logan Air has reiterated its call for slots at London's Heathrow Airport to be made permanently available for domestic connectivity uh, after announcing it will expand its fledgling operation at the congested hub by leasing more slots. Uh, Logan Air began flying the Heathrow Isle of Man Heathrow route back in late to, uh, 2021 using slots temporarily vacated at the airport during the pandemic, later uh, securing those slots permanently. It's now secured access to 30 additional weekly slot pairs at Heathrow under a lease agreement with British Airways, which takes effect in May. It says the slots will enable it to develop regional connectivity from UK domestic destinations to Heathrow, and the new slots will enable Logan Air to operate up to six daily weekly services. Uh, route details will be announced in the coming days, it says. Logan Air Chief Executive Jonathan Hinkle said, we're delighted to be growing our operations at Heathrow, having taken these important first steps ourselves to provide new connectivity to and from the UK regions under this agreement. It's now essential for the UK government to initiate the process needed to reform competition remedies to provide access to Heathrow for the UK regions. Henkel cites the changes to Heathrow's tariffs for regional aircraft operating on UK domestic routes, which took effect this year as critical to the viability of Logan Air's plans at the airport. Yes, I mean, it's really important, isn't it, for um, the regional operations side, uh, especially for the Isle of Man, Ronald's Way, to be able to get in and out of, of major airport hubs as well. Um, I was remembering the first time I ever went on a Logan Air aircraft, uh, 1986, cool. Edinburgh to Belfast City, Shorts 360, on a extremely blustery day. Um, and... Um, yeah, you you that was that was proper flying, that was for sure. Um but um yeah, but their their fleet has been modernized somewhat since then. So um yeah, good good luck to them. I hope they uh hope they do well with it. It still amuses me, don't they? When the times admit that we've been up to Heathrow at the t at the tower there at Heathrow. I think it the, I think it was the last time that I was there and um and you you're so used to it, you Heathrow seeing large commercial jet airliners landing there and then to see you know one of these come in a little turboprop yeah it's it's just really random yeah. well there was yeah. i mean Heathrow doesn't really have much in the way of uh, propeller operated aircraft no. at all 
obviously Fly B were running the uh, uh, Dash, Dash 8. Yeah. Uh, and then back in the day, um, uh, KLM ran a service. I think it was KLM. Yeah, City Hopper service, which was on a Fokker 50 from Heathrow to Eindhoven and back several times a day, which everybody used to call the Philips aircraft because that's where all the Philips employees were uh, down in Eindhoven. And, um, yeah, 44 people out of the uh, 50 people on the aircraft work for Philips uh, huh. electronics back in the day. Um, so, wow. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you don't see much uh, in the way of turboprop operations at all. <clears throat> I mean, it, I, I, mean I, I know, I, I'm sure they're excited that that um they have a turbo problem but that must cause planning issues because i mean you have i mean the separation required surely um you know must be quite full-on you know well to talking to our uh, atc fellow that we we happen to know there um he was saying that the meetings he's had with the airlines and, and all the rest of it and they are able to keep up a, a decent speed on on Ooh. final approach as, as well um and of course don't forget logan air uh run a fleet of uh, embryo uh, aircraft as well so it's not just the right. operations that they've got so i don't know what they're going to use on that route they haven't actually said okay yeah. So, uh, but so uh, no, it's it's certainly quite capable of uh, of mixing it with the with the heavy stuff. But of course, mm. you couldn't bring it in behind, you know, an A three fifty or a um, you know a seven four. Or It'd be a bit uh, of a wash, uh, would they not? With, with, <laughs> with sensible, um, you know, uh, distances between the two. Absolutely. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Have you got much experience on flying this sort of style of aircraft, John, in your past? Yeah, I flew two years on Saab 340s, was a 34-seat uh, turboprop, and, and we mixed it up with everybody. I think the uh, only time I had a bad experience was uh, following 757 one time into uh, Washington, Dulles, and uh, despite being 12 miles behind it, we got rolled up on a wing and uh, got spit out facing 90 degrees in the wrong direction. Oh, wow. With uh, At night, which is even better. <laughs> and... Uh, Good came out of it good visibility then yeah well it was good it was good and clear thank god yeah. uh the captain was flying pilot and uh muttered some words and uh i got a got out a wake turbulence for for our call sign and uh and said they what what were we following they said 757 which are 12 miles behind it and i said well we just hit it hit their wake <laughs> and i think what happened was uh the Blue Ridge Mountains off to the west of uh, Dulles are very smooth terrain-wise, and the wind was out of the west. And I think basically just it lifted up the wake turbulence back up to get us. And uh, so the air traffic controller took uh, kindly to us and uh, vectored us extremely far away okay. from the flight path of the 757. We landed on a different runway from them and, and uh, called it a, a good day because <laughs> we were still in one piece. Well, yes, quite. So so's RB two elevens, eh, Nev? Well, actually, I was just thinking that it it took the I think both the FAA and EASA quite a while to realise um, what the wake turbulence category of the seven fifty seven was, uh, or the or the potential of it. I think because I think it then ended up going up a a, a level in in terms of spacing behind. Uh, if I remember correctly, this is going back some time now. But um, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely correct. Uh, they they did up it. It was just below the max. Uh, the max weight of the aircraft was just below the heavy category, but the design of the wing, especially without the winglet, made that wake turbulence uh, just a lot 
lot worse. And it was a nice game. I didn't need to put out the flaps uh, very much uh, early on. And that all adds to wake turbulence. Uh, that vortice out in the wing gets stronger the slower you are on a clean wing. That's all those things they describe in the manual that causes the, the strongest wake turbulence. And, you know, unfortunately on that night, we got it. Um, but, you know, mixing it up with the heavier aircraft or the bigger aircraft, we can do it. Uh, we just use techniques to stay uh, a little above it. Uh, we watch like a hawk if it's on visual conditions where they touch down, make sure that we touch down past them and uh, don't play with them. But, you know, even at 7-4, we get rocks wake turbulence. Would you fly, you know, would you fly deliberately uh, slightly above the glide slope in, in that sort of situation, knowing that there's something else in front of you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We just uh, fly, you know, a good half dot high uh, with the Saab for sure, uh, just to avoid if we were falling behind somebody that was a bigger aircraft and heavies, we were going to have that six mile spacing. So we're pretty sure that it was going to be away, but we still paid attention closely to where they touched down. There are weird conditions where the vortices can kind of just sit there and hover right above the ground. You, you don't want to run into those things in a, in a unplanned manner because it's quite violent. Uh, I can recall when I worked the ramp uh, at a 240SX with a sunroof, and I had taken the sunroof out, had the windows down, and I was blasting out and went right underneath the flight path. It was 747. It was departing, and it was like Thor's hammer hit my car <laughs> when that wake vortex hit the car, and, and like everything flew up inside, and I was like, what the heck just happened to me? Yeah, But then I saw what, what had just flown by. I went, oh. Yeah, wow. that'll be it then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sitting in uh, various car parks at Heathrow back in the day, you know, watching aircraft coming in, and it, the seven fifty-seven especially when they were running on on the the shuttle routes for Edinburgh, Belfast, Glasgow from Heathrow, you'd see the aircraft come across, and then just as it was about to touch down, you'd hear this sound, and that was obviously the you know part of the the wake vortices of of the aircraft that, that which, which it was creating so uh, yeah phenomenal but um what a great aircraft though what a shame we're not uh, gorgeous. flying it anymore yeah I, I mean i have a different opinion on that well, yeah. <laughs> actually I'll, I'll tell you what before we move on it was nice to see on wednesday i was i was checking out the guys feed over at airliners live up at manchester and there was the Iceland there, seven five. Oh, nice. um, came in with they have the winglets on that, the uh, you know the the shark um, fin wing winglets on there, and um, it was a special livery one that uh, that they've got. Uh, it's a really special sort of design livery they've got, but it's still honestly the the chat when you're watching that show, when the seven five comes in, you know the chat room goes wild. The seven five is just such a popular aircraft with uh with spotters and uh, you know people alike so no comment well if you ask all the airlines uh, pretty much in the u.s what they want they will all say they want a 757 replacement really? straight out really oh yeah they will they will bend the ear of any boeing executive they will get get their hands on and uh be quite blunt they want wow. a, they want a replacement that's 75 derived Wow. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. Right here, seven fives make great jump aircraft too. <laughs> and moving on, the uh... <laughs> we've got uh, 
We've got uh, the next uh, story coming to us uh, from Armando, actually. Uh, he sent us in uh, a video for this next story, and it's coming from uh, airwaysmag.com. Hey, guys, I wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about this article that was published in Airways Magazine, kind of get your thoughts on this um, and some of the perhaps the team's thoughts on the statements made by the Airline Pilots Association here in the United States. Now, this is all sort of in response to the looming pilot shortage uh, that has been threatening commercial airlines post-pandemic. And really, we had talked about it before the pandemic, then it was kind of eased and then made worse. And 2022 was filled with pilots uh, striking, demanding pay raises and retirements. 2023 has seen U.S. airports kind of riddled with aircraft near misses, which is a combination of airline operations, FAA operations. Um, some of these are results of fewer experienced pilots, experienced operators, air traffic controllers, some longer hours, more stressful working conditions. Um, one of the questions that this article actually brought up was, in order to address the looming pilot shortage, how do we get younger generations excited about working in commercial aviation? And I'm experiencing this with my involvement in the Reno Air Races, where really it's just not a thing that is attractive to younger people, really anybody under the age of 40 anymore. Uh, so the largest airline pilot union here in the United States, uh, well, actually here in the world, it represents more than 66,000 pilots at 40 U.S. and Canadian airlines. So that's the Air Airline Pilots Association, ALPA. Um, they they made a statement that said, we, we don't have a pilot shortage. We do have a shortage of airline executives willing to stand by their business decisions to cut air service and be upfront about their intentions to skirt safety rules and hire inexperienced workers for less pay. That's a pretty bold and controversial, potentially controversial statement. Um, now, Airways Magazine had an initial plan of conducting an interview with ALPA. The association instead sent them the transcript of its president and a Boeing 767 Captain uh, Jason Ambrosi's his uh, testimony before the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation hearing, they had a hearing uh, called Strengthening the Aviation Workforce, which was actually held just a couple weeks ago on March 16, 2023. 2023. And, and the answers, well, they said that the answers to some of Airways Magazine's questions were actually in the testimony. So the, the, so the magazine kind of summarized the main points of Captain Ambrosi's testimony as it pertains to the pilot shortage claims. So the association asserts that some airlines are trying to weaken safety standards and training standards and deflect attention from their profit-first business decisions to cut service and hire inexperienced aviators for less money by using the fictitious argument that there aren't enough pilots to go around, another bold statement. Now, instead of focusing on changes to the fundamental issues connected with these profit-driven business models, the association argues that some airlines are using the pilot shortage claim in order to weaken training and safety standards. Again, this is coming from an ALPA spokesperson. Now, two years ago, before uh, the commercial uh, aviation industry was on the verge of this economic uh, catastrophe, the pandemic was believed to be uh, the genesis of the airline 
the commercial airline pilot shortage. However, some data shows that airlines in the U.S. received financial lifelines totaling $63 million. That's American Airlines, Delta Airlines, United Airlines, Southwest Airlines receiving their fair share of pandemic subsidies. Now, this did keep pilots, and I was at an airline that was able to keep all of its pilots and, and ground personnel because of a, uh, a subsidy, a COVID subsidy. Um, so this kept pilots, among other aviation workers, from unemployment and set the aviation industry in readiness for recovery, which we're now seeing. Now, further, according to FAA data, the U.S. is producing more pilots than it did pre-pandemic era. So in the U.S. Senate committee hearing testimony, Captain Ambrosi told the U.S. Um, Senate Committee on, on Commerce, Science, and Transportation that he was on the front lines of the aviation industry during the pandemic and can attest to the fact that the choices made during COVID to downgrade pilots to smaller equipment, to park aircraft, to furloughs uh, pilots, and to put pilots on inactive status resulted in a large training backlog. And we have talked about that on the show. I experienced it firsthand when I was down at the El uh, Delta Airlines Training Center doing an ATP-CTP course. And um, I saw those simulators and those instructors are essentially going uh, about 20 hours a day, four hours for maintenance. Now, Captain Ambrosi in the testimony continued, uh, quote, when demand and subsequently growth returned more quickly than some airlines anticipated, most of these pilots had to be retained. This necessary process is time sensitive or time intensive and expensive. It also relies on a training footprint that includes personnel and simulator devices that were not designed for a global pandemic of this magnitude. He continued that with the recovery and thanks to this committee's actions during the pandemic, airlines are hiring pilots as companies expand market share and networks. These actions have further complicated the current labor market by creating attrition with pilots moving between airlines. And that is another thing that we've talked about on the show. Uh, he continued by saying that pilots are also forgoing less desirable airlines in favor of those that offer well-paying jobs and a higher quality of life. He also said that this too will resolve itself with time because both regional pilot contracts are improving and the mainline hiring will eventually stabilize. Now, it is worth noting uh, that ALPA is calling on Congress to support the current first officer qualification standards and to oppose any attempts to diminish commercial airline safety regulations. And we saw that with, uh, I believe it was Republic Airlines, was making a bid to make their uh, hiring standards 750 hours, claiming that their training po program was as good as the military and that they should match the same restricted ATP minimums as military pilots, which obviously we all disagreed with and it was eventually shot down by both the FAA and Congress and everybody. Now, the association, ALPA, claims that current air safety regulations would be weakened by some congressional proposals, which would also prioritize airline profits over aviation safety, and that ALPA is committed to thwarting any attempts to roll back essential aviation safety regulations and vehemently opposes any attempts to weaken safety standards. So what was the suggestion? Again, the question was, how can we inspire the next generation to pursue careers in commercial aviation? Well, ALPA suggests funding several pilot incentives, such as assisting students with high flight training costs, 
subsidized loans for flight training in partnership with two- and four-year aviation colleges and universities, and excluding students from paying interest on loans while they are enrolled in school. That's in order to, to sustain a robust pilot pipeline. Now, additionally, they advocate the growing number of students who graduate from accredited two- and four-year aviation programs which acquire the license required to work as an airline type, uh, pilot, or the ATP, uh, creating awareness of aviation jobs available among today's competitive workforce and providing those students with the support and mentorship they need to confidently enter the field. Another suggested way is attracting more workforce diversity, which we've also talked about on the show, creating role models so that women and people of color can view themselves as future airline pilots and increasing Title IV funding for hiring professional pilots with degrees from institutions that serve underrepresented groups, such as historically black colleges and universities and giving sizable grants to institutions that serve minorities to launch aviation programs that help these groups and expose them to aviation experiences. Now, on a personal note here, we have talked about that on the show. We've seen some of the airlines over in Europe uh, claiming that they're implementing some hiring programs based on not based on, but targeting underrepresented populations. And, the, and, and I think within the team here, we decided that that's, it, those are great initiatives, but they have to be followed up with action. Um, it's so incredibly expensive over there in Europe, as well as here in the U.S., to become a professional airline pilot, get all the way to your ATP. So I think some of these airlines organizations, maybe not airlines, but some of these organizations are also kind of creating some of these programs as outreach programs, but perhaps not really putting the teeth behind them to to really make a difference in, in the pilot hiring process. Now, another idea that ALPA proposed was to permanently establish the Women in Aviation Advisory Board as a body dedicated to increasing and assisting women in order to inspire them to pursue careers in aviation. For instance, Women currently make up over 50% of the nation's workforce here in the United States. They are notably underrepresented in the aviation sector, accounting for only 2% of airline mechanics, 4% of flight engineers, 5% of repair personnel, and 26% of air traffic controllers, 18% of flight dispatchers, and only 6% of professional airline pilots. Now, on one final note, Captain Ambrosi from ALPA is quoted in the March 2023 issue of Airline Pilot in regards to Airline Safety and Federal Aviation Administration Extension Act of 2010 and pilot training, saying that it, it is no accident that the airline passenger fatality rate has dropped by 99.8% since that law was passed in 2010. He continued to say that this extraordinary record demonstrates that the current system is working in the way it was intended and that the United States is creating thousands of new pilots each year who have the experience and training they need to ensure that this nation maintains its place as the global safety leader. Now, I welcome your thoughts and your discussion on ALPA and Captain Ambrosi's statements to the U.S. Senate in the testimony. And of course, uh, I would love to hear... Uh, the thoughts of the chat room and even if you're listening to this and you have some strong opinions or even questions just send them to the show at podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and it would make some great discussion for a little bit later now i mean this this is an, an interesting one i mean i mean I, th- I think we're all in agreement sh- there there is still a pilot shortage isn't there i mean that's that's just 
go, goes without saying, surely. Yeah, there's reasons behind that. In the, mm. in, it, I mean, I don't know about uh, what John thinks and Nev, but for me, it is, it is financially. It, you know, it's not a cheap thing to do, especially here in the UK. If And by doing the homework that I've done over the last sort of six or seven months as, I, as, I, as I've been looking at possibly completing my licence and doing it, I'm not going to do it here. I'm going to go and yeah. do it in the US because it's so much cheaper in the US to, to do it. But um, obviously, I think we need to get somewhere back to the stage where airlines, because they used to, years ago, airlines, some of the airlines here in the UK used to offer schemes where pilots could, um, you know, have a either part funding or half funding or their license funded by the airline itself. But I don't think that that term happens anymore. John? Yeah, I think uh, you definitely hit the nail on the head there. When I learned to fly initially, I got my private in uh, 1993. It was uh, $3,000-ish, maybe a little bit less, uh, start to finish. I was very focused. I was doing sort of almost on a professional level, flying uh, twice a day, five days a week, ground school three nights a week, while still working part-time. And I got it done in 41 hours. Required hours is 40. If you can go into these very focused programs, and that's all you need to really do, very dedicated program, you can do it on a cheaper basis. But the, the flight hour cost was significantly less. I think I was paying $19 for the flight instructor, uh, maybe 70, 60, 70 dollars for a 152. So you know, it was a reasonable price point to get in the air, learn how to fly. Nowadays, you're hearing these people going into these programs, and just to get the commercial, they're talking $100,000, and that's not even getting a CFI, double I, anything where you can then start really making legitimate uh, career start to build up your hours. I'm definitely a big believer in this 1,500-hour rule. I, I was a captain as the transition occurred from the previous setting to the uh, – of just a commercial certificate, which was a 250 hour minimum. And we were hiring 300 hour uh, pilots and uh, the training level, the experience level and their ability to think increased so much when we got to 1500 hours, especially as an instructor and in your training, you're bringing in uh, uh, this ability to think ahead a little bit, especially after you've gotten comfortable with the aircraft. The, the total training costs that I see in Europe, I mean, are just astronomically stupid, really. And I think that they need to go in, back into that mindset where, you know, back when I went to my second set of training, when I went out to Arizona, uh, it was uh, a KLM school out there. There was a Sabina school out there. Lufthansa had a school out there. JAL, I think, had a, a school over in California. These were all sponsored uh, airlines, Chinese airlines. They sponsored their students to come over. I think that that's really what's going to have to go back to that model, even for the U.S. carriers. I think that the regionals are probably doomed as a, a, a dying beast in, in the U.S. and probably it's going to be similar models to what you see in the uh, Europe where they get wrapped into the major carriers that they're flying for and they just become a, a subcomponent and it's a straight flow through. So we've, we've, we've got this sort of claim, haven't we, uh, with that in, in mind, where um, airlines are potentially putting profits above safety. I mean, how does, does that 
feel like it's sort of ringing true? I mean, how do we feel about that? I, I think uh, Mike Rowe puts it best uh, as a safety professional. Uh, safety third. Right. Okay. Safety yeah. third is a legitimate statement because you can't have safety without a business and money to run the business. Yeah. So you have to run the business first and you need to do it in a safe manner. So safety's going to come after running the business because we don't add the business. There is no reason to be safe to, to begin with. I mean, it's just a, it's a fact of, of life. We can say safety first all the time, but it's not you know, mm -hmm. safety. Always. I think is what the uh, coast guard uses as their kind of training motto for their safety programs. And that's more appropriate. It, you have to have that safety always in your mindset, <laughs> but um, yeah, they're going to push as much as they can. And could they create, uh, a program where they could get pilots into the air safely and at the same capable levels with less hours than they, they currently require. Yeah, I think they could, but it's going to take a much greater commitment financially for them to, to begin that, start that and, and get it realized to the point where they get the return on investment. I'm not sure if they're capable or, or are willing to do that at this point. I mean, if I go, like, I mean, so as, as the nervous flyer amongst us, obviously that makes me feel quite apprehensive uh, about the, you know, the potential there, if you like, for um, these companies to be sort of putting that. And I completely understand where you're coming from there, John, because, I mean, you, you, of course you're right. Without the biz, business model there, without the business existing, there is no need for the safety, I, I, I guess. And I, I suppose... There again, I mean, we've mentioned it before. Perhaps there is quite a strong argument for what uh, Ryanair, of all people, do, where actually their um, maintenance program is actually quite a bit more rigorous than a lot of other um, airlines, purely because they rely so heavily on the aircraft being in the right place at the right time. They're actually potentially spending more money on their, you know, routine maintenance, if you like, because actually if a plane goes tech in their model, it costs them way, way more money than if, you know, spending a bit of money on extra maintenance and all that kind of thing. So perhaps there's a strong argument for um, there being like the best of both worlds, if you like. You can make that need for um, very extreme maintenance and safety, if you like, to, to work for your model. Um, rather than perhaps putting it, you know, as you say, safety third, maybe. I, I, I don't know. It's, uh, you know. Uh, well, it's all about an ROI. You know, you're, if your return on investment is short and visible, it's much easier for the, the, the bean counters of the business to, to make it work. The problem we have in the safety community is when we do everything right, nobody sees anything. Well, yes. Uh, and that's the objective. Also, what you're seeing uh, is this mentality difference between the U.S. Uh, Canadian markets where this time building and experience is valued more than the the classroom experience of the European models. European uh, pilots are regularly going through and being thrown into a 737 or an A320 at you know 300 hours with a multi-crew pilot's license and the, the training style is a little bit different. There's a much, much greater focus on the uh, academics classroom portion they have the you know to, to my view the ridiculous amount of tests i know it's going to be an it can be an argument uh, onto its own but it's just a different mindset of how they develop it they're able to get the pilots into the system maybe quicker the costs are still ridiculously high because of the way things work 
uh, in, the, in the European economic uh, zone there. And uh, I think there's got to be a, some balance that's going to be brought together and figure this out. I think that the entire world would benefit from homogenizing the training standards, homogenizing the licensing, fully uh, allow people to take their skills and capabilities to where they can market it. There's going to be a lot of, of uh, protectionistic statements being made. And I know that Alpa, my, my own union, would definitely be first and foremost. But you know, we're currently suffering from a pilot shortage in the U.S., my company has chosen to alleviate that by hiring a lot of Australians because a lot of Australian pilots were out of business, out, you know, out of their jobs. And we've been bringing them in in, in droves to the point that uh, almost every flight has a Aussie on board. So. Christ, mate. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to give you an idea, John, I just I just done a quick quick look to see what our local clubs prom or promoter has here sort of rough average around here and around the uk as well you're looking to to get your private pilot's license here at the moment is around about in dollars about 11 just over eleven thousand mm. dollars yeah, yeah we'll, take, we'll, we'll, we'll take a comment a couple of comments from the chat room if we may and uh the uh, well, first first things first. Uh, let, let's deal with the elephant in the room here. Uh, Dirk is, is saying, "Can Armando please stop appearing in his offensive Pilatus shirt, please?" That was the first thing that, uh, that he was that he was saying. Um, and Nick uh, in the chat room there is saying, "Is my feeling is that businesses will always do the legal minimum they can to get away with, with uh, to satisfy the letter of the law. Shareholders will always have a strong emphasis on where." operating costs can be reduced um it's uh uh where are we where al um aaron p is commenting saying that uh, number of hours is not the whole picture the quality of training is key also very much echoing i think your point there john uh, i've flown with some very capable low hour pilots um who have i'm just trying to find the rest of the message uh who have been oh not it's not all there unfortunately uh that's a shame um but uh yeah uh dirk is also asking is there a difference between um tr in training quality uh between different airlines that hours matter for some and don't for others uh john is that anything you you can comment on um airlines have always sort of in the u.s have certainly always had their uh preferences, uh, depending on, on which carrier it was, how they tended to hire. Uh, historically, I think we always looked at Delta as a uh, hiring Navy pilots, halfway joking because of the uh, double-breasted uh, uniforms they wear, like the Navy. But, um, you know, military pilots were definitely more welcome there. Uh, FedEx, same. Uh, FedEx had a, has an exhaustive, or at least did have an exhaustive testing prior to even getting indoor, and I believe Delta had something similar as well. Others are looking for uh, ability to fog a mirror and retain the pulse. Mm. And it's, it, it's just a, a matter of, of needs and, and experience. Oftentimes, what's most important to most when we're doing a hiring is everybody generally has the same qualifications, give or take, maybe more or less our experience. But it's you know, can you sit in the cockpit for six, eight, nine, seventeen hours and not kill one another and work effectively? <laughs> I mean, that's going to be a big factor, isn't it? Let's be honest. 
Well, yeah. it is, and and sometimes it goes wrong. And I've I've been on the side of the plane, uh, you know, on on the right side. So being the chameleon, and look at the captain going, "Oh my word, you know, please let me out. I don't want to do this anymore." Yeah. But having to keep it safe, yeah. and uh, that that's that's not a fun experience. And you go, well, sometimes you kind of wonder how people get hired to do that job when they have these kind of personalities, and you know, it, it is what it is. But uh, it does greatly affect safety. It does affect your your quality of life and your customer service capabilities will be affected if if you don't have a good team on board the aircraft. If the mm -hmm. front and the back of the plane aren't working together, then there's a problem. Absolutely. Uh, right. Uh, great conversations, guys. Thanks for that. Genuinely really interesting. Um, Carlos, if we can perhaps move on and just whittle through the next uh, couple of stories, because I, I don't want to do what I like to refer to as a uh, uh, Captain Al and run out of time for the military. So uh, <laughs> if you could uh, uh, yeah, launch this, uh, into story 07, please. Yeah, the next story comes to us from ABC News and one mile at a time.com. And uh, Cuban migrants fly into Key West Airport on a motorised hang glider. As now, you do. Pictures, pictures look amazing. I think I'll... I'll try building one of these myself. <laughs> uh, two Cuban migrants landed at Key West International Airport on a motorised hang glider on Saturday morning, authorities said. They were taken into US Border Patrol custody after landing at approximately half ten local time, according to Monroe County Sheriff office which has deputies assigned to the airport no serious injuries reported which is surprising a miracle i think looks uh, the sheriff's office and the chief patrol agent walter solstar um, um, shared images of the powered hang glider following the incident uh, in response to the inquiry from abc news a u.s customs and border protection spokesperson referred to Slosar's Twitter account for information on the incident. Cuban migrants arrive in all manner, typically in makeshift homemade boats, and Monroe County Sheriff's Office spokesperson Adam Lindhart told ABC uh, this is not the typical event, but it's not completely unusual. Chris Ferreira, the Key West local and self-proclaimed aviation buff, told ABC News he was driving his golf cart nearby when he heard the distinct <laughs> noise of the hang gliders engine. They, Similar engines, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. He looked up and knew that it shouldn't be there. He said. Now, the, obviously, the pictures we've got here. I don't know if you've got um, you flashed them. I haven't, unfortunately, mate. They're they're not in the right place. They're not. In a, well, yeah. it's it's it's. Uh, I, I mean, it. I mean, it's basically a law. It looks like a lawnmower with a big sail on it. I think that's the best way to describe it. I, I have to say, if that is if that's if that is hand built or built yeah. for. A, from you know bits you find in the back of your garage on the shelf yeah it's it's not a it's not a bad job no it's it's not i mean it's clever basically i mean it's got small wheels on it. it looks like to me it looks like a massive buggy you know like that you a push chair that you'd have a like a child in with with a a big sort of sail and stuff i mean it looks pretty um I mean, the wheels look like they came off my dad's wheelbarrow, but... I, More than likely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Looks like my Logan Air 360. Uh, oh, 360. No. <laughs> oh, no, let's, let's hope not. I mean, it's not much worse than the ones that you can get in the U.S. for a, 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 a trike uh, hangar like that. Yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> I, wow, that's just impressive. Yeah. Very impressive they did that, and, and they got across there. And from the navigation perspective... Yeah, indeed. Open water for ninety miles of water. That's 
Yeah, wow. they, were, they were using ways. Uh, uh, ballsy, I think, is the is the answer to that. Very ballsy. Cojones, cojones, cojones. Yes, absolutely. You've got the next story, Nev, and uh, BAR recruiting. Yes, continuing the recruitment conversation, uh, simpleflying.com uh, tells us that BA and its subsidiary BA Euroflyer are bolstering their A320 pilot teams with direct entry job openings. Ooh. About time too. Uh, the British carrier is looking to bring in outside recruits to pilot its Airbus A320 family uh, fleet ahead of the busy summer travel season. If they haven't got strikes at Heathrow, of course. That is. <laughs> uh, yes. Not BA, but... Uh, the other folks. Um, the first officer job uh, post seeks experienced high-caliber pilots for both British Airways and its short-haul subsidiary BA Euroflyer. Experienced recruitment will be higher to apply to British Airways, 500 hours or 100 sectors on the A320 or 1,500 hours on an aircraft type that satisfies zero flight time training and flown this type in the last 12 months, while pilots applying to BA Euroflyer will require 500 hours or 100 sectors on an aircraft that satisfies a ZFTT and flown this type in the last 12 months. The application process adds that preference will be given to pilots that currently hold an A320 rating and that all applicants must hold a UK part FCL license or have initiated the transfer process with the CAA. BA operates currently a fleet of 30 Airbus A319s, 86 A320s, 27 A321s, whilst BA Euroflyer has seven uh, A320 200s and four A321 200s. Uh, in October, BA's parent company IAG confirmed it would bolster its Airbus order book with an additional 37 A320 Neos, taking it to 59. Uh, and getting on the roster at BA or BA Eurofly can lead to major career opportunities, including the chance to move up to captain and pilot larger aircraft once you've racked up seniority. First-year pilots at BA Euroflyer can expect to earn around £65,000, which will go up year by year as per the airline's 12-year pay scale. Euroflyer pilots will also be placed on the BA's master seniority list, granting the same bidding rights as a mainline BA pilot. Spokesperson for the airline says that uh, some of the benefits include staff travel benefits from day one, a competitive employment package, a large route network, state-of-the-art training facilities, uh, career development options including command opportunities and the opportunity to move to other fleets including long haul further into your career. Company benefits include defined contribution pension schemes and generous life assurance cover along with uh, several voluntary benefit schemes such as private medical cover, dental and critical illness cover, technology scheme, cycle to work and electric car scheme. Uh, in July, the carrier announced it would cut 11% of its summer schedule or around 1,000 flight cancellations across Greece, Spain and Portugal, which affects approximately 1 million passengers. The airline reopened its recruitment scheme last summer in light of the shortages, emphasising the development of new talent for its short-haul fleet, particularly pilots for the A320. Quite right, absolutely. Uh, and um, quite the uh, benefits package there, actually, isn't it? It's, uh, it, it's, if you can get in, it's worth being there, I think. Well, yes, but you might say that, I mean, often, you know, there's conversations with the union about... 
uh, pay scales and you know they they've all taken a hit on their pensions you know some time ago to to help out the airline and and the, the more experienced ones would say right it's now time for the airline to to pay us back for our sacrifices that we made but uh, nonetheless um you know the 1500 hour rule is i think is a good one and i think that will mean that they can hopefully get more people through but uh, yeah pilot shortage is a real thing once again isn't it I wonder whether they'll, get, uh, whether they'll get any uh, easy pilots Nev who want us move to uh, the uh, the BA yep. you never know you never know do you because easy are all Airbus uh, fleet as well with uh, 319s and 320s and 321s mm. so. well, definitely that they're, they're trying to poach from other carriers in Europe yeah but uh, to give perspective for the pay wise it's about half the pay for a regional first officer in the U.S. now. But they were offering to fly a 320. Wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. And there you go. Um, moving on, John. You've got the last story. And uh, are we going to get the box of tissues ready for you here? Because obviously it's a very sad <sighs> story that uh, might uh, Yeah. John. Yeah, so uh, it says uh, it's from the independent.co.uk. Uh, a private jumbo jet sold for scrap after just 30 hours in the air. What? A private, yeah, uh, we heard about this one. A privately owned Boeing 747 jumbo jet is being sold for scrap after just 30 hours in the air uh, over a total of 16 flights. The aircraft, which was configured as a private VIP jet intended for a member of the Saudi royal family, Remained on the tarmac for almost 10 years at Euro Airport uh, Basel Mulhouse Freiburg at the border between France, Switzerland, and Germany. Plans to finish the jet with a lavish interior fell through. After failing to secure a new buyer, the aircraft was finally flown to Pinal Air Park in Arizona, where retired planes go for stripped parts. The $560 million Boeing uh, BBJ uh, was one of the just 10 privately owned jumbo jets. Heavily uh, modified additions that boast a cabin space well over 5,000 square feet and are largely configured to attract governments and high net worth uh, corporate clients. According to Connor Devar, uh, a senior analyst of aviation analytics firm uh, Sirium, the jet uh, are jumbo in both name and uh, nature. 10 were built in total, and this is the first one to be retired. I'll leave the rest with there. So yeah, we heard about this at my company. Uh, the it's depressing. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, maybe some of those parts will uh, be recycled and put onto our planes. The um, yeah, the, the aircraft is large, and it, it, it as a private jet, it was very niche. I think that a few of the uh, Emirates uh, had them, uh, and uh, were oftentimes configured with full surgical suites, as you know, and bathrooms and showers and bedrooms uh, to allow them to go anywhere in the world nonstop uh, at, at their beck and wish. You know, it, it's a shame, but if the aircraft's not getting used and sat for 10 years, that's going to be in a bad, bad shape. It would take a long time to get back into shape to go flying. It's probably, in part-wise, worth more in parts than it is as a, uh, a going concern as an aircraft because – it's probably just a, a, a bare interior in there that the aircraft was delivered with and would take a lot of work to get it ready to fly. Yeah, yeah. Dirk, Dirk S makes a good point, and uh, that is absolutely correct, Dirk. I will be looking online for um, 
some more parts to <laughs> fill the house. Uh, well, of course, yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, when is the divorce scheduled, by the way, just out of interest? <laughs> well, actually, fingers crossed, I'm hoping that, that over the Easter period right. that uh, I will have, I will have hopefully be getting the, the, the blade mounted on the wall here when we redecorate the office so right hopefully the the rb211 stage one blade that i've got sitting in the in the spare room will be properly mounted on the wall in front of me here which i can't wait to see. right so good. i mean presumably you have to have some structural work done to the house with all this extra that stuff that it you're is hanging on the walls here it, right, yeah. i have got some specific very 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 important fixings to fix this on. I, I, I can imagine. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but it's, um, yeah. it's a shame no one else brought that, John, for for how you know what it was. I'm, you know, it was. But yeah, like you said. Yeah. Costs, okay. But we are running out of time, I'm afraid. Um, yes. So... Moving on. Uh, it's time for the caption is just for fun. It's uh, sparked some interest this week in the. <laughs> See what you did there. <laughs> and uh, this week's picture was posted on Wednesday, as we do on our Facebook page. And uh, for the benefit of our audio listeners, Nev, what is this week's picture? Is this depicting? genuine, by the it, way? It's not. No, it's not genuine. No, I, I was going to no. say. <laughs> I think we need to have a little uh, artistic license here, don't we, really? But uh, <laughs> uh, it looks like a maintenance fella uh, on the front of the aircraft uh, with his... Um, uh, gloves on and all the rest of it uh trying to carry out some uh, maintenance unfortunately uh, the uh, engine appears to be on fire and is missing most of its cowling and various yes. other oh. indeed <laughs> so uh it does look terribly unfortunate doesn't it um it's uh, yeah it's a bit of a tricky one isn't it uh so uh if <laughs> as always then if we are ready uh yes. do do go through i'll, Neil, sit, I'll uh, sit i'll sit this one out if i may yes um, neil comes up with uh, one of the cabin crew misunderstood when he was asked to start the uh, in-flight service <laughs> uh, stuart says this orange lampshade would look fabulous in my lounge Bill says, what hit the fan? <laughs> uh, Stuart says, yeah, I wouldn't use this one. Let's park it up and... <clears throat> uh, how long have we been up here? A while, yeah. Uh, another one from Stuart says, always make sure your watch is tightly fastened. Yes. <laughs> Nick Nicholas says, Armando's can-do attitude was really appreciated by all on board, but Carlos oh, nearly choked on his tea when he saw the invoice for the speed tape. <laughs> uh, John says, a procedure a procedure misinterpretation leaves an engineer with a sticky problem after failing to defrost a chicken before firing it into the engine. <laughs> Flame grilled chicken wings, anyone? Mm-mm. Yummy, my favorite. Yeah, Nick says, well, at least Nev's Club Europe meal in seat one alpha will be well cooked. <laughs> Cremated, I think. Chris. Yeah. Chris says, and to think I gave up wing walking to do this. <laughs> uh, David says, can't see anything wrong here, mate. Right. That's, that would be the answer you'd get from any engineer, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. Bill says, uh, tell engineering that we're going to need at least two rolls of duct tape to fix Quite, it. absolutely. I mean, if you can't mend it with duct tape or WD-40, yeah. you just throw it away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, James says it looks like something is missing from this engine. I can't quite place my finger on what exactly <laughs> is, but uh, it doesn't look right. What do you think, mm, yeah, coworker? I, I, yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Stuart says, "Yeah, if you just prize the cowl here." Oh, now. Uh, Michael says it was his first day on the job, and yet he had the overwhelming feeling he have may may have fallen for a prank. Yeah. Uh, very appropriate considering tomorrow is April the first. Of course, oh, yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Ian says Boeing and Airbus conduct in-flight maintenance trials. <laughs> uh, Dirk, <laughs> Dirk, Carlos working the PTUK Master Studio. How it is, how is it going? Yes, very yes, true. Indeed. Uh, Bob says, here's one we made earlier using common household products. <laughs> okay, okay. Tape. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, from Stephen, and, and mind my British accent, it's, it's only a flesh wound. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, what's that? Sandra? Monty Python, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sandra says, excuse me, sir, your engine is on fire. Uh, James says, well, no wonder we can't get any thrust. Someone's installed this bolt right here without the washer. <laughs> uh, quite right, absolutely. Something to uh, I like for. this one. From Dirk, uh, Ryanair sharpening turnaround times even more by introducing in-route MRO. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, Rudy says, well, back to the drawing board. Well, quite, indeed, indeed. Uh, let's whiz through some of the uh, things in the chat room. I'll do these, those if it's, if it's on, okay. Then. Dirk S says, uh, oh, don't worry, that one will buff out. Uh, John Falk says, uh, oil change, sir. Uh, Aaron P, uh, he says, what do you mean your ATC slot is cancelled? Uh, <laughs> Richard Adams says, I know the military do hot refuel sometimes but this is ridiculous uh, <laughs> I'll have it fixed in a jiffy John Falk is also offering uh, UH uh, Blackhawk uh, by the way Nev is suggesting that perhaps this is the new seat 1A well I, uh, wouldn't, I don't want to co correct him uh, but that, that would be seat 1 Foxtrot as it's on the right hand side right, of course, right okay of course yes and, and finally always a stickler for the detail isn't he uh, finally uh, Richard Adams says he'll be quite safe he's wearing a fluorescent jacket health and safety boxes have all been ticked here. Oh yes, that's Absolute, very true. Absolutely, that is very, very true. There we go. Thanks for all your amazing, amazing entries. Uh, we'll do another one next week, Carlos, will we? We will, yeah, Wednesday. Look out on Facebook, social media, and I'll pop another picture up there next Wednesday for you all to leave your witty comments on. Indeed. Well, it's that time of the show where Armando has, sa has saved the week this week by sending in all the videos for us. Uh, but he's got some great military stories for us, so Matt, hit the button. Our first military story is from the drive.com. A U.S. Air Force RC-135 rivet joint has conducted a sortie inside Finnish airspace, at least for the first time in recent memory, flying opposite the border with Russia. Now, these flights look set to become a little more routine as Finland continues to move through the process of joining NATO, something that the country's leadership decided to pursue following Russia's all-out military invasion of Ukraine last year. Now, some online tracking websites had the RC-135 
uh, serial number 62-4131, using the call sign Jake11 at the time, departing RAF Mildenhall in the UK uh, earlier in the day. The aircraft then flew east over the English Channel, then the Netherlands, Germany, and Poland before turning north. Uh, when the plane did turn north, passing over Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, before crossing the Gulf of Finland and entering Finnish airspace. Once there, it conducted a number of orbits, as this aircraft tends to do, particularly on the southeastern end of the country facing Russia's Lake Ladoga and the strategic port city of St. Petersburg before returning back to RAF Mildenhall. Now, St. Petersburg is home to the headquarters for the Russia's Western Military District and some elements of the Russian's, Russian Navy's Baltic Fleet. And with the exception of Finland, all the other countries that the RC-135 flew over in the course of the sortie are NATO members. Now, in a statement today from the Finnish Defense Forces, um, they strongly suggested that this is the first time that a RC-135 from the U.S. Air Force or any other military crewed or uncrewed intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance aircraft had actually conducted a mission inside Finnish airspace. And of course, it was Co uh, in coordination with that country's government. Uh, they did say that the statement that they put out did not say what type of aircraft, of U.S. aircraft, would be conducting those sorties. They said for operational security reasons. Um, now, the specific flight of the objectives weren't made public, as you can imagine. Uh, this story, which came from the drive, which is part of the war zone, they reached out to the Air Force for more information, um, and they basically just said that uh, flight operations in international countries with international partners is part of normal bilateral, multilateral cooperations, and uh, that the flights develop the interoperability, my favorite word, with the Finnish Defense Forces, and improve the common situational awareness and strengthen national defense. Uh, as you can imagine, the flight path is very much in line with what a typical RC-135 rivet joint uh, flight path or routine sortie looks like. Elsewhere in Europe, really all over the world, these airplanes have been flying around since the 50s. Um, they are based on the C-135 re-engined, of course, um, which actually has uh, is been in service with the U.S. Air Force since the 60s but also with the Royal Air Force in the United Kingdom just in the power in the past couple years uh, they've acquired their own rivet joint capabilities now traditionally the sensors on these aircraft are uh, just a variety of intelligence collection assets they, it is manned um, there are some offboarding systems but the bulk of the aircraft is made up of airborne cryptologic language analysts including uh, data link operators airborne analysts mission supervisors um, cryptologic linguists that actually speak foreign languages, uh, sometimes multiple foreign languages. There's airborne systems engineers that maintain all the equipment. You can imagine it's a 707 filled with electronics equipments. And there are some electronic warfare operators that are, you know, there for more electronic order of battle type thing, using sensors on the aircraft to develop, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's radar based or some kind of electronic intelligence to put together a picture with what the linguists in the back are putting together. Um, now, in this particular instance, details about the exact disposition of Russian air defenses, other forces along the border with Finland would be of great interest to the US government and Finnish authorities and the rest of NATO, among others. Now, last year, it was reported that the Russian military was withdrawing forces 
from the areas opposite Finland in order to bolster the fighting units in Ukraine. However, in January, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu announced plans to establish a new army corps, typically a very large ground formation in, in kind of Russian parlance, with uh, thousands of troops in the country's semi-autonomous Republic of Karelia, along with the Finnish border. How much progress the Russia's military, Russia's military has done you know, towards this? Um, well, they, they've struggled to make up for some major personnel losses in Ukraine over the past year. But with the help of, of that controversial and partial mobilization, it's actually made some progress in, in, in standing up this new unit. As you, as you guys can imagine, the, this is of, of particular interest to NATO and the U.S. and the U.K. and all of our Western uh, allies. But it's most important that uh, the the people of Finland understand what it is, what is what the Russians are amassing across the border. Um, this is kind of the bilateral relationship that the two countries have, or really all of the NATO countries have, where in return for allowing these sensitive aircraft to fly over their airspace, they may have done so in return for for some sanitized information or maybe even raw intelligence. Uh, that is most uh, time pressing and time critical to Finland as to what Russia is trying to do. Um, I can only imagine that we're going to see more of these intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance flights. The RC-135 uh, rivet joint is just one of many uh, in intelligence aircraft that the U.S. And, and, and the NATO allies have. So I'm sure we'll see plenty of these flights happening, especially if Russia is making headway on uh, creating these new units up there. Incredible. It's one of the one of those aircraft that you see fly over us here locally, where mm. me and Matt are. And it's one of those aircraft that you just cannot mistake for anything else <laughs> because of that <laughs> interesting nose cone on the uh, right. okay. aircraft. But, yeah. I, I bet I could. <laughs> no, you, I think even you you would you would definitely I think you would spot this and you would know it's military Matt if you uh -huh. saw this. Okay, yeah. if you say if you say so. Yeah, if you say I have so. I have faith in you, Matt. I have faith in you. <laughs> Good uh, Lord. Next uh, story Armando's got for us uh, in the military news this week uh, comes to us from Eurasian Times, and it's all about the F-15 fighters from EurasianTimes.com. U.S. deploys F-15 fighters to launch retaliatory strikes in Syria after Iranian drones hit U.S. military personnel. Uh, just hours after a military base housing U.S. troops was allegedly struck by an Iranian drone, the U.S. Central Command dispatched its most trusted and combat-hardened fighter, the F-15, to launch some retaliatory strikes. Tensions have significantly been uh, increasing between these two adversaries after intelligence officials announced that an Iranian kamikaze drone struck the military base and killed a U.S. contractor. Uh, the Avenger missile system, missile defense system known as the RLZ, was reportedly not fully operational during the alleged drone attack. The F-15 retaliatory attacks were carried out after this U.S. contractor died and five U.S. servicemen were uh, injured, as well as a second U.S. contractor. According to some Pentagon media releases, the casualties resulted from an unmanned aerial vehicle uh, on uh, attack on a maintenance facility at a U.S.-led 
anti-ISIS coalition base in the Hasaka uh, district or area in northeast Syria. That was on March 23rd. Now, the U.S. Department of Defense stated that the F-15E uh, fighters assigned to Central Command launched an attack at approximately 2.40 in the morning local time. Um, now, U.S. intelligence officials said that the UAV was of Iranian origin and that the attack comes after extensive use of these sort of uh, kamikaze drones against Ukraine. Uh, Iranian-made ones have been uh, noted in the ongoing war. However, it's, of course, too soon to you know, figure out whether this was the first deadly Iranian kamikaze strike against U.S. forces. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin from the U.S. Uh, acting on orders from the U.S. president stated that the strikes were carried out in re retaliation for the incident um, and a series of recent operations against coalition forces in Syria by elements linked with the Iranian Republican Guard. Now, the deployment of the F-15 for the um, retaliatory strikes is significant given the impressive combat record of this you know usif fighter jet was fourth generation fighter jet still being put into combat at a time when fifth and, and even sixth generation aircraft are under development now according to the syrian observatory for human rights which is a human rights organization headquartered in the united kingdom militia members backed by iranian fi fired missiles now, militia members backed by Iran fired missiles towards the U.S. base in Syria um, in retaliation for the strike by the two F-15s of the U.S. Air Force. Um, now on March 24th, U.S. forces uh, in Syria came under attack twice within 45 minutes, and another U.S. personnel uh, was injured as the you know hostilities are basically flaring between the Iranian-backed forces in Syria. The first attack used some multiple rockets that struck the coalition forces stationed at the uh, Mission Support Center site. Uh, the second attack was conducted at a site called Green Village using three more drones. Um, and the drones did manage to uh, cause damage to some buildings. Now, the fresh attacks were reported after a, ba a barrage of unconfirmed allegations of gunfire exchanges and more strikes between U.S. and Iranian-backed militias in Syria that surfaced on social media of all places, and the U.S. Um, you know Central Command that oversees military operations in this area has yet to kind of divulge any more secrets. So this looks like it's going to be another back and forth um, between uh, the U.S. and and some, you know, I guess uh, government-sponsored forces in in these contested areas, and obviously our our. Our thoughts are with all of those service members deployed out to the area and their safety, of course, is our number one priority and everybody's number one priority. And let's hope that this kind of just doesn't escalate too much and we're able to, you know, keep this down to a, a low boil. Thanks, Armando, for that. And, uh, yeah, it's a case of uh, if you hit us, we'll hit you back. Yeah. I think they're from the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, and if you're going to do it, um, I think the F-15 is not a bad choice. <laughs> we had uh, I actually had to send a message to Mr. Warner during this week because we, um, we had an F-15 doing, doing some interesting stuff over here on, on, on its own this week, Matt. Mm -hmm. It was one of those cases where someone messaged me on social media and said, what is this? Yeah. So I, you know, done, done what we always do and get the old um, ADSB Exchange app open. Yeah, yeah. And uh, find out it was uh, an F-15, so. Very good. Yes. Yeah, very good. <laughs>
next video up from our Mondo comes from the businessinsider.com and it's all about the Ukraine's Air Force uh, signing up pilots as it pushes for Western fighter jets. From businessinsider.com, Ukraine's Air Force is now set to allow foreigners to serve as pilots and engineering specialists. That's according to a spokesperson stressing the fact that uh, Ukraine will likely need some international recruits if and when it starts to receive Western combat aircraft. Yuri Inat, a spokesperson for the commander of the Ukraine's Air Force, said in a statement this last Thursday that foreign citizens will be able to join if they have the suitable military training. Uh, he did say that if they have military occupations such as a pilot or aviation engineer, these people can legally become servicemen of the armed forces of Ukraine. Uh, the spokesperson did say that the Ukraine is not currently lacking pilots because it is operating Soviet-era aviation equipment, but added that the needs for specialists might increase if it receives new combat aircraft that it has been asking for. Now, the spokesperson said that if we have F-16s or other types of equipment, then maybe uh, foreigners will have to come with them because of the experience of people who have long been working with this equipment will be needed even for briefings. I think he meant more training and, uh, and mission planning. I did say that the Air Force had been inundated with offers from people willing to help since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, with some volunteers being from other countries. He did note that the Ukrainian army already has foreigners serving in certain military units, including an international legion of foreign soldiers. Now, Ukraine's been pushing its allies to send its advanced military aircraft, as we've been talking about on, on the show for a couple months now. Um, NATO members, Poland and Slovakia, we talked about just uh, last week, have already begun sending uh, MiG-29 uh, jets to Ukraine, but the, but they've been seeking modern Western jets such as the F-16s for now a couple months, and that's kind of made um, the the news. Now, insider, uh, business insiders, uh, Christopher Woody reported on March 22nd that using F-16s has certain requirements which would prove challenging for Ukraine. Uh, he also wrote that acquiring the jets, training the pilots and engineers used to maintain them uh, when transferring them to Ukraine could be a process that takes up to two years. Now, the chief of aviation of Ukraine's Air Force, however, told the Times of London that Ukrainian fighter pilots would be ready to fly F-16 uh, fighter jets in fewer than six months of training. Now, there was a retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel uh, uh, Dan Hampton speaking to the Voice of America, popular radio station here, an internet radio station. That's, he said it would be faster to send pilots who know how to fly the F-16s already than to send Ukrainians to U.S. to begin a training program, which is a, a more plausible option now that Ukraine has said that foreigners can serve in its, in its effort. Now, uh, Business Insider's Isabel Van Hagen previously reported that that Colonel Hampton, who is a decorated US F-16 pilot, said that he would volunteer himself to fly F-16s for Ukraine, even if uh, the US eventually decides to send them or they pick them up from a different country. Uh, so this is an interesting development. I, I hadn't really thought of this possible uh, avenue of, of outsourcing the flying to previously trained pilots. And like Business Insider said here on the article, it certainly would be faster to get uh, folks that are uh, already qualified in the aircraft, recurrent in the aircraft, than it would be to to 
train pilots from scratch, even though they, you know, they're probably coming from another fighter platform, MiG-21s or MiG-29s or something like that. But, um, but it'd probably be a faster process to get these uh, individuals uh, recurrent in the aircraft, recurrent in combat tactics, briefed up on, on the conflict itself and, and the operations, and then field them out to Ukraine. I think this is something that they were always going to have to do with all this this influx of um, jets coming in from other uh, n you know other NATO countries and that they were always going to need to have not just pilots but have some or have people who knew what they're doing in regards to engineering you know servicing maintenance of these aircraft yeah. because there's no, there's no point in sending a hundred aircraft over to the Ukraine for a hundred pilots to fly. But you haven't got anyone there who knows how to repair, you know, and maintain these aircraft. So, indeed, you, you've got to do a proper job, haven't you? You have got to do a proper job, exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Armando, for sending all those in this week. And uh, even when he's not here, he's still working. Bless him. He's a busy, but busy beaver he is. Uh, now we have obviously we're uh, coming up to uh, towards uh, where we'd normally normally sort of finish a show really on, 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 but we have got a special guest with us and we do want to have a, a catch up with John uh, to see what uh, what John's been up to uh, because John you are our resident uh, cargo pilot on the, of of the community as such who uh, are regularly in the chat room you are normally each week but uh, uh, so, just for the benefit of the listeners, John, you, you uh, if I'm right, you, you fly the Dash 400 and is it a Dash 8 as well, you you fly the 7.4? Yeah, I fly uh, both versions. The, the 400 is the most prolific version we have with our company and uh, we have uh, the Dash 8s, including the last Dash 8 that came off the line and uh, the aircraft are mostly similar, a little bit of differences in terms of uh, when you're sitting in the cockpit, basically just electronic checklist, I don't think you really notice. And the uh, it's just a lot quieter. But uh, they fly the same. But you're, um, you're the, 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 the outfit that you fly for, though, John, you're, you're an old Boeing fleet. You've got, I think you've got 777s and 76s on the fleet as well. Yeah. Um, Acme Giant flies everything from uh, 737, uh, 767, 300s, uh, 777, 200 freighters and then we have the 74 fleet we are the largest 747 operator in the world now and which, which is it just the seven fours that you fly f for your your outfit or are you, are you sort of signed off on the um the other ones uh the light twins no i i, I stick with <laughs> four engine stuff uh that's our joke inside light um twins. yeah <laughs> light twins so um yeah uh now when you're type rated in the uh, aircraft here in the U.S., you generally almost always stay on that that aircraft type. There's very few people that would ever bounce around. Um, so I'm on the 7.4 for now. If I switch to the triple, I'd stay with the triple. Um, that, that is one of the few straight planes in the U.S. that you could bounce between the 777 and the 787 because they have a common type rating, uh, similar to the way the 757 and 767 Going anything else be going backwards. I like having the hump that uh, we control the whole space up there. And if you'd ask twelve-year-old me what I wanted to do, it was fly seven forty-seven. So I didn't have to grow up. Yeah, I can't believe you guys have got um, some seven thirty-seven dash three hundreds in the fleet. Yeah, I'm not sure if we're still operating those. <laughs> um, I know we have 
the the 800s that have been converted freighters they're fine primary and that operation is going i think that uh that um might increase it should increase uh but the uh the large uh, company that's running all that stuff is uh, still starting out their their way with uh airline operations so now have you got some uh questions for john yeah i just wondered john where did your aviation journey begin and did you always aspire to be a pilot from a young age yeah my parents would say definitely the case uh they blamed the jet the uh bc the f4 uh, demonstration uh from the blue angels down at oceana when i was about two uh and i, I can tell you from definitely from the time i was five that's all I ever thought about doing was being an airplane pilot. Uh, and uh, that stuck with me. My, I think my mom was in denial for 18 years or so uh, until uh, they finally gave in and uh, admitted that, that flying was definitely going to happen for me. And, uh, you know, wasn't a lot of flying in my, uh, in my family. My uncle was a uh, Air Force pilot. And, you know, there was always that uh, – the classic Air Force picture of him on the uh, ladder of the T-38 that uh, every Air Force pilot gets uh, when they're uh, going through training. And, uh, but he wasn't always around. He wasn't around very much in my life at all because he was constantly deployed either in Asia or in Germany. Um, but uh, it's just a, a love, a passion to me that I can't shake. It, it's, uh, it's definitely my fibers of, of who I am. Yeah. How did you begin your um, what your sort of pilot training initially? What how did that um, start for you? Yeah, I kind of alluded to it. I, I saved my parents a bunch of money on their taxes uh, one year when I was between uh, sessions at school, and because I had this big bump of money that I saved them, they said, "Hey, you know, if you put your mind to it and you get everything set up, you show us a good plan." Uh, we'll give you, you know, a few thousand dollars to uh, put forward. And I came home from uh, my uh, spring term, went right to work finding uh, flight schools. And this is pre-internet days. Uh, so I was in the phone book and driving around making visits, set up my uh, flight training and my ground schools, uh, set up my jobs. I needed to keep, uh, you know, gas money in the, to keep the car going. And I went to town. Uh, and did it two months to the day and 41 hours of flying, which is uh, a lot to the point that my parents really were very surprised at, you know, how I just turned into a machine. And that's something that's uh, always sort of been the way I have been with aviation and my training is that uh, I will put everything into it because uh, it's just, it's demanding, but it's uh, rewarding. And I think that I, being accomplished at something that you love is is a uh, something special. Yeah, how did you end up going down the, the cargo route, and was that an intentional direction for you? Um, it came out of a uh, a month of flying with a colleague now here who um, told me about at the uh, Acme uh, Giant and uh, explained how that worked, and I was just getting ready to move over to Europe because of my, uh, you know, being away from home so much. It's very difficult on the family and my wife, uh, especially, you know, making her a single parent half the month. 
And uh, it just seemed like a good fit. And, it, you know, flying 747 seemed good. But, yeah, originally I was always thinking, oh, I'll go work for United because I, I grew up around the Washington area. United was the big carrier there. Uh, you know, I had worked for United on the ramp, uh, worked for United Express uh, as a pilot. So I thought, well, that'll be the direction I'll end up going. But and this worked out really well. And uh, I just love the diversity of the flying that I have uh, as an opportunity here. My last uh, roster for uh, this past month, or actually for March, in the first week, I went around the world, uh, you know, tropical places uh you know such as germany but uh, djibouti down in africa down to hong kong right after that up to anchorage down to the states back up to anchorage you know all around the world and uh when i first started here at atlas my first six months i was on all six continents and uh it's not an opportunity you get at most airlines well, absolutely. I was going to ask you about those those sectors and the circadian rhythm, and you know how that has a, how that affects your your way of sleeping. I mean, have you got a routine that that you um, do for this sort of thing? Yeah, is left at the door when you leave the house, and uh, you just work on a um, what am I doing next uh, routine. Uh, sleeping uh, when you're tired and eating when you're hungry kind of deal. I do try to work uh, out of plan as best I can to be tired at the right times. I, I put a lot of focus on my room setup to have it cool and dark at the right time, uh, uh, turning on lights when I want to be awake and get my cycles right. right. And that's, um, that's a job in itself almost. It's uh, unpaid. And, uh, but, uh, I also learned the ability to sleep whenever, you know, I go back, uh, when I take my break and I go sit in the seat and I can turn off in five minutes or less and, uh, sleep in the seat so soundly that, uh, when I am woken up, uh, you know, the back of my arms are numb from being off. <laughs> Is the seats that you have uh, obviously because you obviously have your rest periods and stuff on board the aircraft, John? Obviously, on the commercial airline, passenger airline, is that they tend to have those crew compartment areas with with actual beds. You know, um, I'm guessing you guys don't have that kind of luxury. You just have kind of a, a business class style seat on on the aircraft. Oh no, we had, on some four we have the beds. Uh, our triple sevens have the beds. The seven sixes do not. Uh, the seven threes don't fly long enough. Um, I was working on a video uh, from flying on uh, the, the last 7.4. Uh, the computer was not playing nicely, so I couldn't get ready for this show, but uh, I'll, I'll share it with you. And it, it's a big tour. We have uh, essentially the old style business class seats in the uh, front part of the cabin. The aft part of the, the, the bubble is two bunk beds. And uh, you know, guys will either go back into bunks and sleep or you know, sleep in the chairs. Some people are chair sleepers. Some people are bunk sleepers. I, I tend to be a chair sleeper just because I don't like the, the gunk that builds up in the in the in the back. So, now I was always led to believe of what I've seen online and on TV that that um, that you guys cargo pilots, you know, especially on the on the Queen of the Skies on the seven four that you guys fly. I was always led to believe that that you you eat really well. You have fantastic meals on board the aircraft. Is this right? Hmm, fantastic meals might be a stretch. 
A lot of food? Yes, definitely. There's a lot of food. We, we have a joke that uh, um, our bodies have to look like the, uh, the image on the back of the tail of our, our aircraft, the big globe. So uh, you know, a lot of guys are not in the best of shape uh, because we have trays of sandwiches, hot meals, depending on the length of the flights, uh, and usually more food than we need up there. Plus the coffee, plus the sodas, and uh, yeah, on some airports, yeah, we, we really appreciate uh, the food. Uh, we have a, a particular uh, Han Germany Ramstein's all catered by the same uh, same folks, and they take really good care of us. Uh, put some really good food on board, and those are good ones. Middle East usually has good food. Um, Asia's are hit and miss. Some of them are and. Uh, Sandwiches in the U.S. are kind of, yeah, they're 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 not great. But I've been heavily influenced by living in Europe, so my taste have moved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just think about the seven four, John. I mean, it's known for its incredibly high levels of redundancy with all the systems that you've got on the aircraft. Is that one of the attractions for you of flying long haul? on a four-engine aircraft, particularly a 7.4, with all of those levels of redundancy at your, your fingertips? Uh, that's a bonus to me. 7.4 just represented the pinnacle of commercial aviation. Um, and, yeah, you didn't want to grab four throttles and shove those forward and uh, make it go down the runway and, and take it someplace. And it, it is a... Uh, it's a great airplane because it does have that redundancy and does give you all the capabilities to continue to operate with, uh, you know, individual systems fail because nine times out of 10, it does not affect us. Uh, we lose an engine. It is not a red emergency checklist. It's just a, a yellow sort of caution checklist and, and does not cause us to divert. You know, yeah, I think if the engine pops and we think parts might've come out of it, we're, definitely going to land. We're probably not going to go start out across a, an ocean as a certain British carrier did once. Yeah, um, they did, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. But the airplane... That, that, that Boeing had certified it to do so, therefore uh, they were just following the manufacturer's instructions. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember what the what is, was. <laughs> what is legal and, and technically feasible and what is intelligent to do are, are different stories. And you know, I think it, that in that particular case, what I recall of it was that they didn't necessarily fully calculate out their additional fuel burn from the lower altitude. And then um, they sort of chickened out in that last part of the, the flight with their fuel numbers. Yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, I tell people I'm a chicken. I don't like landing on fumes. You know, I, I will do anything I can to keep gas on board. I am very conservative on my choices. Uh, I have a wife who does aviation safety and I'm a bad liar and she gets really mad when I do stupid things. So <laughs> I don't do stupid things. Um, and that's just how I roll. And now being a safety representative, an accident investigator, I feel that I'm, I have to set this higher example. So I don't, take those chances and I talk through things and I make sure I get full input uh, before we go making choices that you can't reverse. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the thing is uh, the most useless thing in the world, isn't it? It's fuel in the Bowser. Um, so yeah. and uh, runway behind you. Is that what they say? So yeah, definitely. Yeah. How well, easy is it to uh, to progress on uh, in the air, in the outfit you're with, John? You know, good to go from right seat to to left seat. Uh, in U.S. carriers, it's all about seniority. It's maybe a little different than uh, some of the European carriers have a, a performance metric that they utilize, or certainly Middle East carriers use a, use a performance metric. But for us, it's seniority. I looked out. I came in the door. It said five years. I upgraded within a month of that five-year mark, and uh, it was uh, it's been good. Some uh, some of our fleets for a while were very very short upgrades and you currently are seeing that now in some of the mainline fleets with uh delta and i believe american both having three to six month upgrades like six month upgrades onto a seven six so that's like you haven't really got your footing in the airline and and figured out things and then now you're off the class to learn the left seat and be uh checked out to go run a, a seven six across the atlantic and the atlantic is a busy place and it's back to where it was before and uh you have to know your procedures you have to be comfortable in that operation i think to be a good good leader there but uh it's just the way things have gone it's such a high demand uh that people have the option now to stay in the right seat and go for quality of life and still make more than adequate money uh, versus taking the first upgrade nev well, we're sort of closing in uh, to the end of the show, but of course, John, we've we've got to ask you that question, haven't we? The the question that we ask all of our guests. I think I know what the answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you had the opportunity to fly any aircraft, either past, present, um, retired, uh, GA, commercial, military, and you haven't had the opportunity to do that, what would that aircraft be? I would love to get my hands on an A1E SPAD, which is probably not what oh, you expect. A what now? <laughs> Even I'm having to Google that one. <laughs> What's A1, that? It's A1E, so this was a carrier-based. Oh, Skyraider. Skyraider. And SPAD was a shorthand, but the A1E had actually had like a compartment in the back, so you could put people in the back, so I could throw my family in the back, my wife next to me, because she's a private pilot. And it's a tail wheel, huge radial, uh, but it was a plane designed to go do close air support. It's just a bad looking plane. Did an amazing job, and I loved that uh, Sandy mission that they used to do. And uh, I just think it looks cool. Um, you know, everybody ticks his little stuff, but I just, I just an airplane I've always really admired. And uh, if I could ever get my hands on one. Anybody out there that knows how to get me into one, I'd, I'd appreciate it. So, <laughs> right. Well, you never know. the The old PTUK community is a funny old beast. So uh, anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, John, for uh, for coming on the show. It's been lovely to have you on tonight. And obviously, the conversation has been rich with with aviation greatness, um, which I knew it would be having you on board uh, the show tonight. So uh, thanks for joining us, uh, John been really good time. absolutely a pleasure and uh quickly 
before we uh, top off, finish the show, uh, don't forget to search for us on social media. All the usual links, you all know all the links. Uh, all the relevant links will be in the show notes uh, for today's show. Uh, just going to say a quick thanks to everyone who's joined us in the chat room tonight, all the YouTube family in there. Great to see everyone in there. And, uh, yeah, it's been uh, been a great show tonight. I've really enjoyed it tonight. So, uh, yeah, thanks to everyone. And also thanks to Nick as well, our latest addition to the team, for putting all the uh, notes and stuff and bits and pieces together for us tonight for the show. So thanks to Nick uh, and, as well. And John for finishing it all off as well. He's, yes, 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 yes. John's been a very busy bee for the last... Uh, few months hasn't he with yeah, all the flying indeed, so yes. that's, that's good still news. very much the executive producer though yes he yeah. is yes he still he still has the uh yeah, final four say no four he's stripes on his shoulder and also the final say uh, <laughs> <laughs> he he is the one that says yes or no so uh, yeah oh absolutely. he says no a lot as well oh he does yeah he's not oh, afraid no. to is he yeah no. he's not afraid to keep you in check that's the important well, that thing is, that, that yeah. is correct <laughs> Yes, I know. I've, sometimes I feel like I'm married to married to John as as well as uh, you know Gemma. Yeah, don't don't forget the wife's name. That's not the way forward. Uh, and on anyway, that bombshell, on that bombshell, <laughs> that is it for episode 450. Thanks to everyone for joining us tonight. Take care. You know, you know what this means, you're don't up you? To. You know that what this means, isn't it? What's that? Talk, talk to me. Only a year to the 500th. Oh, shush, shush, shush. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everyone, whatever you're up to. Stay safe and keep those eyes up in the skies at what's going on because there's, there's loads of good stuff up there. We'll see you next Friday on the show, hopefully with Armando back in the hot seat as well. So from me here in the home studios, from Matt in the PTUK Master Suite Studios, from Neville Bounds in his studio, and from our awesome guest, John, take care. We'll see you next Friday. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Very <laughs>